Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of January 10th, 2012. <laughs> 2012. 2023. I just turned back the clock. <laughs> yeah. God. I mean, would, would I want it to be 2012 again? Uh, got to yeah. live through the pandemic again. But you know it was coming. You could buy, you know, a bunch of stock in short sell Disney and airline stock right before. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. buy it back and make a bunch of money. Could go, you know, what 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 comics have blown up since 2012? We could go and buy a bunch of. Oh my God, that's a long list. Uh, Since 2012, wow, 2020 alone. I mean, I I would plan for 2020. I'd unload a lot of comics. If I'd have known all the key comics were going to hit in 2020, I would have I would have owed up on. I would have piled up on uh, first appearance of Miles Morales. There you go, Miles Morales. Yeah, any any Amazing Spider Man, um, Werewolf. Werewolf by Night 32, right? Yeah. That was before it blew up. And that's already peaked and come way down. So anyway, that's a podcast for a different day. Uh, we're here to talk about the uh, the DC Comics this week. Pretty solid week. Uh, and we should start off by saying we talked about Flash 790 last week. It actually isn't out in shops until this week. Uh, so we're not going to go into detail. If you're curious about it, go back and listen to the episode from last week if you haven't already. Um and I will say, no, nobody's fault necessarily. You know, maybe my fault. You want to point the finger, blame it on me. I didn't double check. Um, it was originally in the folder for last week. But keep in mind that, you know, a lot of these publishers, as we've said, they, you know, the whole support staff is out of the office for the, you know, last half of December because talent's busy with holiday stuff and nobody's actually putting books together. Um, and so I, I'm sure at the time, mid-November when the book got put in the folder for January 3rd, that that was the release date. <coughs> it probably got pushed back either because of shipping or printing or something. Um, so again, totally my fault. Apologize for that. Uh, that being said, can't wait to find out what's going to happen in this one-minute war. And it's a, it's a real interesting start, I'll say. And Jeremy Adams continues to do great work on uh, on Flash. So we'll see how that all plays out. Yeah. Anything to add uh, about Flash? Uh, yeah, just uh, just that. Remember that if you do check it out on YouTube, I do have timestamps, so it's easy to go to the DC our DC Comics review for January third and just look at the Flash uh, seven ninety timestamp. It'll take you right to it. It's really quick, and uh, I'm not sure if you have that on your uh, on your podcast itself, but it's uh, I think it's. No, uh, I, I used to, and I I wish I had time to get back to it. Maybe I will. Um, but yeah, not necessarily, but I think it was one of the first books we talked about. It so. was. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, written by Jeremy Adams, as I mentioned, Roger Cruz does the pencils, Matt Banning and Wellington Diaz on the inks colors by Luis Guerrero and letters by Rob Lee. So check it out. Uh, all right. First book that we're actually going to talk about in some detail here. Um, that's out this week, Batman incorporated number four from writer Ed Brisson. John Timms does the art Rex Locus on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, so one of the first, I want to address something like one of the things that we have sort of, uh, I, I guess one of the criticisms, best way to put it, constructive, um, but but one of the things that I, I personally haven't liked, and I think I've heard Rocky mention this as well, is there's so many characters in Batman Incorporated. And a lot of these characters are from previous Batman Incorporated uh, comics or or that era where Batman was being written by Grant Morrison. We all know how much Morrison likes to pull in obscure characters or, or create these weird out there characters. This The cast in this book is very large. Um, and especially because 
I didn't read Batman Incorporated back then when Grant Morrison was writing it. I'm not familiar with that many characters. It becomes really hard to keep track of the uh, the characters, at least for me. So it's been a challenge. I noticed in this particular issue that I, – and I don't know if somebody said something to Ed Brisson or what <laughs> have you, but I noticed that a lot of the characters, they're doing that thing that they used to do back in the – 80s and previous with comics where in the first few pages or, or, you know, first few panels of a scene, characters are saying the names of other characters. Yes. Refreshing. Yeah. So you get who, and it can be kind of wonky. You go back and you read those comics, you know, and I think when we talked about Marvel superhero secret wars on a, on the podcast years ago, we mentioned this, like you go back and read those comics, you know, we covered, uh, one issue a week for 12 weeks until we covered the whole series and every issue was recapping what came the previous issue. And it, when you read them all in a row and then it gets a little repetitive, but you got to keep in mind that back then when these comics were being, you know, written and distributed, especially in the Jim Shooter era of Marvel, Jim Shooter was, he would drill into his creators. You got to treat every comic like it's the first comic somebody's reading. So you're, you know, you're introducing these characters and so, yeah, it gets kind of repetitive. You can kind of skim over it if you don't need the refresher, but the dialogue is a little corny, right? Because it feels really expositional because they're recapping what happened and introducing all the characters and, and what have you. So that being said, I think Eric, uh, Ed Brisson does a really good job of not making it too bad. And I think the the positive far outweighs the negative. And I need this to continue for a few more issues before – I can figure out who everybody is, especially because some of these villains, I don't know that this that we've ever seen these villains before. So maybe we needed the uh you know, the, this kind of obvious, hey, this villain is 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 this guy, this villain is this guy. So yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great that, you know, we found out who Fisher is, but we're also being reminded of, you know, Hero and um uh Knight and you know all these other uh, all these other characters because I yeah I can't <laughs> I can't keep them straight so uh, I thought that was great that you know we're reminded hey this guy's called Wingman this guy's called Hero this guy's called Gray Wolf um, you know I just thought it was was really interesting um, that that's one of the criticisms we had and I don't know maybe somebody's listening maybe we weren't the only ones that had that criticism the other thing that I'll mention about the story itself is. I was sort of taking everything that this character Phantom One, the the alleged sidekick of uh, of Ghostmaker, I was sort of taking everything that he had said with a grain of salt. You know, when he told Clown Hunter his origin and how Ghostmaker had you know left him for dead and and that sort of thing, I was like, God, can I really believe what this guy's saying? Like, you got to take his word for it. But when we hear it, a, 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 somebody else's point of view. From what happened, um, it's sort of the same story that uh, that Phantom One had told us. Yeah, Black, so, Black Mist's point of view. Black Mist, that was the character. Yeah, that. Black Mist or, or Avery. Um, yeah, it's sort of the same the same story. So, yeah, I got to wonder, like, is Ghostmaker worthy to be leading Batman Incorporated? And, and what's Clown Hunter's um, – like, what's he going to do? Where Where is his allegiance going to lie? Part of me thinks – based on the last page, uh, you know, where he's standing over Ghostmaker and a bit of a cliffhanger and he's standing over Ghostmaker. And he's got his 
bat there that's got the uh, batarangs embedded in it and wrapped with barbed wire or what have you. Then he's going to turn around and take a swing at, at Phantom 1. And I kind of think that's what's going to happen. That's my guess. But yeah, this was this was interesting, well-paced. Um, and I just feel like it's such a simple thing. But just the fact that everybody's name everybody's name dropping name dropped in here, like it just felt less confusing to me. Um, and I felt like, man, I, I once I have down, look, once I can visually see a character and know, okay, that's that so and so, and that so and so, and that so and so, then maybe I should go back and like read this series from the beginning, and I might get more out of it. Because I think in previous issues, the whole time. I'm reading it, but in the back of my mind, I'm going, yeah, but who is that guy? Who's talking? Who's saying what? Like, I have no no context, you know? Um, just like if you were reading a Justice League comic and you didn't know who anybody's name was, you you know, part of your brain is engaged in trying to figure out who's who. So, uh, again, I, I appreciate that that was there. It's a little thing, but I think it makes a big difference. And, yeah, I need to, to go back and, and – or maybe I'll just write myself a list this is this person and this is this person and go back and reread the, the first three issues. But anyway, what did you think Rocky? Uh, well, real quick before you, I, I do also want to say that the art from John Timms is really fantastic. Very dynamic. There's a lot of action in this issue and he handles it really well. The colors are very bright except for the flashbacks where everything is muted. And I appreciated that as well. Cause it, I always like it when flashbacks are very obvious. Like if I flipped this open, I was flipping through the pages it's very clear to see, okay, this is something different. This is a different narrative. This, this is a flashback, different dimension, some kind of something that's very different about it because, again, the colors are, are so vastly um, muted compared to uh, the regular regular timeline, I suppose you'd say, present day. So uh, anyway, what, what did you think? I really enjoyed this issue because I had I – had, I had criticisms the first three issues that there were too, there were too many players and I, I – I would read the issues two, three times and still I was making notes and I wasn't quite clear who was this character, who was that character. And this issue, I thought, nailed it. Uh, and and uh, to the credit of Ed Brisson, he very – fortunately, the plot actually called upon <laughs> – Ghostmaker to make contact with his various teams that he has around the globe trying to save his mentors from being uh, taken out uh, and essentially killed by Phantom One's minions. And so he so in a very clever way, in a very common sense way, Ghostmaker is saying, hey, Algacho, you there, Jiro, what's your status? You know, Statcom, you know, so just very I, I thought it felt very natural. It never felt, you know, I didn't. Uh, but may, maybe I'm so desperate to know these characters. Maybe, maybe, maybe it is a little unnatural. But I thought it flowed very well. I thought it. I thought the dialogue flowed well, and I really, I actually understood all these characters. And I, I was just when I was g getting frustrated, I, I actually mixed up who Black Mist was as I was halfway through, and at the end, I was, I clarified it. And so, at the bottom line here is if you take the time and all these characters are interesting. I think there's still a lot of them, too many, but they are interesting. It'll be nice when they're broken up and we don't, we can deal with them more piecemeal and individually. But I like the fact that this issue, if you take your time, all the names are there and it clearly establishes that Phantom One has a very competent team. On Phantom One, uh, the, on his team is um, Black Mist, who is the traitor on Ghostmaker's team. We got Oryx, uh, we got Fisher, we got Hollow and the Fallen. 
and I should say the Fisher, the Fisher, the Fallen and the Hollow. And then, of course, we got uh, Ghostmaker's team of El Gacho, uh, Jiro, the Grey Wolf, Knight, Wingman. And, and uh, so... All, all these moving parts, all these teams are coming uh, against each other and all moving toward that, that ending where uh, Phantom One wants, uh, wants Clown Hunter to kill, to kill Ghostmaker as a final act of revenge because Ghostmaker left Phantom One for dead. Uh, you mentioned that there was another point of view that seemed to confirm Phantom One's version of Ghostmaker's deplorable actions against them that would have led to his death. Uh, what I really liked, I liked Black Mist's origin herself. Black Mist originally being a vigilante in Dublin, Ireland, and how she was taken out by Tim Trevane or, or Tommy Trevane. And that's why, the reason why in the very first issue, that knife fighter, Tommy Trevane, who was brutally murdered in a very egregious manner, we now know that Black Mist is the one that killed Tommy Trevane because Tommy Trevane paralyzed Black, uh, paralyzed Black Mist in the past and ultimately Black Mist in in uh, ultimately re- rehabilitating herself, building herself an exoskeleton, uh, sought out Tommy, Tre- uh, uh, Tommy Trevane for revenge and stumbled upon an injured, fa- uh, an injured Phantom One after Ghostmaker had left him for dead. And so she befriended him and they're kind of like their partners slash maybe she's sort of like a mother slash mother figure to him or mentor. But in any event, it's clear that they have a relationship. And I'm curious to see what kind of relationship that is. It, it does seem to be more and more mentor and mentee, but maybe it's more of a partnership. I'm not really sure. But I like the character work here. You know, one thing that Ed Brisson, I think, even though I, I you know, I think he's managed this story relatively well, considering how many players he has in it. Now, he shouldn't have that many players in it, in my view, because this, the, the, the guts of this story could be told with fewer. We don't need that many players in it to tell, to tell this story, which has some emotion and has some gravitas to it. I don't think we needed an entire, we could have eliminated an entire set of characters in, 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 in various parts of the globe, but it is what it is. And, I, you know, they're hitting the ground running. And if, if you're just, I will say this, if you're just somebody who you're on a budget and you want a good Batman comic and the comics, you, the money you spend, you like enjoying it, you get into the comic. There's a lot of substance here if you take the time to read it and really get into it. I think this story is is worth reading. And because this, uh, I will say, this is actually my my new favorite issue so far, issue four, because I, I enjoyed it that much more. So. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think just again the the just telling us who they are just made such a made such a difference to me. Yeah. Um, and plus, it just it had such a different feel because again, there, there's part of me that's thinking um, that Phantom One's full of crap, and you know I want to think Ghostmaker's decent and he's not a bad guy. Now, now this throws into question so much. It's making Ghost, you know, it's it's pushing Ghostmaker back you know, almost to the side of being a villain, like we kind of thought he was when he was first introduced. So it, that level of complexity makes it, uh, yeah. makes it interesting and compelling. So, yeah. uh, all right, up next, because it's DC, another Batman book, Batman and the Joker <laughs> deadly duo book three from writer, Mark Silvestri. Arif Prianto is the colorist. Otherwise Silvestri handles, uh, all the other stuff. Um, I'm gonna let you go first. What'd you think of this issue? I, uh, I didn't mind it. I mean, this is this is a this is a callback. This is a nice little callback of uh, 
you know, I'm so old. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna confuse my decades. Does it remind me of the early 2000s, or does this comic remind me of the early 90s? Uh, <laughs> I don't know, but it, it's fun. I. Uh, I love the art. Uh, I love the art and I love, I hope they do another, I hope they do another reprint of this issue and have it in black and white and with gold foil because I did that in the first issue of this. I love that. I, the, the art here is fantastic. Uh, kudos to um, uh, Mark Silvestri. Yes. Eric Prianto on the colors. The the art here is, is, is really good. Uh, lots of covers, lots of covers. And by the way, I, I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast and somebody who apparently took the time to uh, delve into it, apparently in combining what I've what I've been told from two different podcasts, from people who've done a lot of research, there are on average in 2022, there were 642 different comic books published every month, 642. And, of the 642, the average number of covers per comic was 3.56. So each comic of the 604 had an average of 3.5 covers each. That's insane, but, but that's just that's just a, a quick uh, side note there. Uh, but it's a great time to collect comics. The problem is we have so many choices, and in particular with Batman. But this is a good Batman comic. I like this. This is Batman. We, we, Batman here is, uh, he's been sort of bitten by these Joker clones. And these Joker clones sort of have a way of sort of combining DNA and or organic material and DNA. And, and he's overcome the infection. But this, there's this uh, uh, last issue ended with this, this villain. We don't know who this villain is yet. We find out in this issue, uh, this villain wants to basically get revenge on the Joker. But this villain has a very odd way of doing that. This this villain in the opening pages of this issue, this unknown villain is basically expecting the Joker to show up and, and for the Joker of all people to solve a riddle. And if he doesn't solve the riddle, this cup, this couple, this gray couple, um, and this, uh, they're, they're the Greys, they're the Grey family, and uh, the husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs. Grey, they're going to be killed unless the Joker so uh, shows up and solves a riddle. But, of course, the Joker doesn't care if somebody dies, so, of course, Batman has to show up. Batman shows up, and, and I thought what was a really great sequence, Batman shows up, and he's got to look through a pile of, of files and everything, and he's got a very short period of time. He's got, I don't, I don't know, was it 10 or 15 minutes to review all, a tons of material and to figure out what the riddle is he has to decide who lives and who dies which one of the greys should die and he finds out when he reviews the files that the greys had this son but he finds out he reads that deciphers that these that these greys were terrible parents and when the villain asks him who should die he says batman says both of them and of course uh, Batman doesn't want both of them to die, but he's solving the riddle. And that is the answer to the riddle. Both of them should die because they were terrible parents. Uh, but of course, Batman doesn't want both of them to die. But the villain, uh, the villain impressed with Batman essentially says, well, I'm still going to kill the parents, but I'm going to let the boy live. And so that's what happens. So Batman's still pissed off. And he's still he's still trying to figure out, you know, all these Joker creatures going throughout the city. They seem to be a hybrid of the Joker's DNA, the real Joker's DNA and some other kind of material. And he's 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 kind of uh, he's kind of like uh, tr still trying to figure stuff out. Meanwhile, 
what what he discovered we get scenes of one of these joker creatures taking one of the decapitated heads of their victims and putting it slamming it on a pike in a very gory scene and we get we get a glimpse of this villain that has sort of a, a scarred eye and this is a so this is a villain that very much hates the joker so you can imagine one can guess that this is a particular villain that uh, or this is a particular person that the joker has hurt sometime in the past and what have you and in, in his investigations, Bruce Wayne discovers that uh, that the particular type of technology used to ice, to create the type of virus that is creating these Joker clones could only have been done by a, a few number of companies. And he ends up uh, talking to the head of a particular company, this Sims character, and this Sims character is ultimately uh, revealed to be uh, – uh, who is someone whose daughter died at the hands of the Joker. And so it's, it's fairly obvious. It's fairly, you know, fairly obvious at the end of this issue, who the villain is. And so there wasn't necessarily that much of a mystery for Batman to solve. Uh, we just know that this is, uh, uh an individual, a father of, a, he's lost his daughter and he seems to be infected. He's got sort of a, looks like a infected cybernetic eye. So it's interesting that, the, the visuals are fantastic. Visuals are fantastic. The dialogue is good. It's entertaining. I'm I'm enjoying this. I love the art. I think people I I think people are going to enjoy this issue. And it's uh, just good old fashioned Batman fun. And uh, I enjoyed it. So what about you? Yeah. So when I'm going through the press previews and you know, I'm just going down the list, reading everything in order, and this comes up: Batman versus Joker, Deadly Duo. Right? Like, there's part of me that was like, ugh. Another Batman book, another Joker book. I got to read this so we can talk about it. I, I, I was reluctant, right? I was like, no, I'm not going to skip it. Let me just power through. So I started reading it and I'm like, you know what? This is pretty damn good, right? Like Mark Silvestri, obviously mostly known as, as an artist. Um, you know, I think Darkness is probably the other property that he's that you could say – he's done the most writing on or, or, you know, known for writing, you know, maybe he's not the one that always scripts things, but you know, the guy's uh, been in, in the comics industry for decades and he, he definitely knows how to tell a story. Um, so, you know, you could argue whether or not he's a, a great writer, obviously he's, you know, probably a better artist than he is a writer and, and Rocky's right. The art here is fantastic. His Gotham city very much has its own feel um, this isn't the cleanest line work I've ever seen him do, but that's purposeful. Um, and so I, I enjoyed that as well. And yeah, I just thought overall, this was a really strong issue. And what's most interesting, you know, it, you mentioned it, you, you talked about, you know, whether did this feel like a, a Batman book from the nineties the or, or early two thousands. And I would go back to even before that. And you could make the argument that, you know, once once the Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns came out, that Batman was fundamentally changed forever. Now, that may or may not be true. Um, you know, it may have taken a while, but I think it's definitely fair to say that when you talk about people that are writing Batman now, those were people that maybe were, you know, 10, 12 years old, and you read something at that time, and it's, it stays with you, right? There's a nostalgia factor to it. There's... Um, uh, just how much it impacted you and, and, you know, blew all our minds as, as little 12 year old boys or what have you. So um, regardless of, of, you know, that argument or, <clears throat> excuse me, or when you think that happened, 
I don't think it can be argued that Batman didn't didn't change at that time, right? And and the legacy of of the Dark Knight Returns goes to today that we have a darker Batman, and we can talk about the Christopher Nolan movies and all that kind of stuff that comes from that seminal work. If you go back before Dark Knight Returns, certainly in the early '80s, when Bruce wasn't so obsessive and he wasn't so brooding and he wasn't so terse, I guess you could say, you know, like a man of few words, as it were. You know, he was still a hero, and he he still was very focused. Um, but it was a it was a different kind of Batman, and that's what this reminds me of, right? Like he's using his brain. He's very much, um, you know, this this scientific guy, this guy who's, um, you know, doing the research he needs to do to figure out what's going on with this, this hybridization of, of genetic DNA and, and some kind of, you know, non-organic substance that that's creating these creatures. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. It can be kind of tropey um, because it's like you said, the villain of the piece that were introduced here, the head of Simtech, uh, Sim, who's lost his, daughter and there's a scene with him and Bruce Wayne at the graveyard and you know yeah it's all a little bit cliche it's not 100% original these are the things that we've seen before but at the same time you're fulfilling expectations on what people think is going to come in a Batman story there's also some great moments or some great one-liners um, in there especially from Nightwing kind of poking fun at uh, at Bruce Wayne so and and Alfred as well very dry sense of humor so all that works really really well I think it probably is informed by some of the Batman stories that that uh, that Mark Silvestri read when he was a kid, you know, or when he was a teenager. Again, going back to a Batman that's not so just abrasive and pissed off all the time, you know. This is a very capable Bruce Wayne, still a very driven Bruce Wayne, but he's not a dick, you know, like he is so often portrayed. Even though at one point. Um, I think one of the lines Nightwing says is, "Can you stop being a jerk for a second, and we can focus on this?" But I'm like, man, he's barely being a jerk compared to the, you know the way he's written now. So, yeah, I think this works on a lot of levels. And I got finished reading the issue, and I was like, man, that was really good. Like all those feelings of, man, I really don't want to read this Batman Joker book. Like was it completely gone? And that might be because Joker actually is in this particular issue very very little. He spends most of the issue all tied up with this mask over his face with zippers um, kind of a gimp mask or what have you. And when Batman, you know, maybe the time when Batman is at his most brutal is when he is dealing with the Joker um, says, you know, I'm not going to put up with your nonsense. We're going to go on this mission. You're going to come with me. And uh, they go jumping out of the back of a bat plane <laughs> together, which maybe isn't the most realistic thing. Cause Joker's still like shackled. So um, yeah, but it, ma- it makes for a, a cool, a cool image, which there's no shortage of great artwork and great scenes in this book from, um, from Mark Silvestri. So yeah, big fan thought it was, uh, was really good. Definitely exceeded my expectations. Yeah. Also, I did notice there was one particular scene that had, um, had a date of 2019 and it reminded me how long Mark Silvestri has actually been working on this book. And there's every part of me that believes that that piece of art was drawn in 2019. <laughs> I, I think this got announced at San Diego Comic-Con in like 2018 or 2019. Yeah. So 
I'm sure he's been working on it for that long. And it definitely shows because there's a lot of double page spreads with, you know, huge skylines and you just look at the number of lines on each page. Yeah. And you can imagine that it's, yeah, taken Mark a long time to, to draw this. So, all right, up next, because it's DC, more Batman. I am Batman number 17, <laughs> Motherless Child Part 2, John Ridley's The Writer, Christian Ducey and Eduardo Panseca with Julio Ferreira as artists. So Christian Ducey handles his own, all on his own. Eduardo <clears throat> Panseca pencils, Julio Ferreira is his partner, inker, guy that inks him all the time. So I'm sure those two are partnered up, and then Ducey is doing some of the other pages on his own. Rex Locus on colors, Troy Petrie on letters. Bit of a cliffhanger uh, ending last issue. And <laughs> I've said this a lot in reference to I Am Batman and how it's followed the Fox family, Lucius Fox being the guy that Bruce Wayne basically, when Bruce Wayne's uh, fortune and company, Wayne, uh, Wayne Enterprises got stolen by the Joker during the Joker War, Bruce Wayne was left poor. You know, I don't know. He still owns a brownstone in downtown Gotham. How poor can the guy be? But anyway, I digress. Yeah, Lucius Fox. When the when the fortune got restored, Lucius Fox is the one that it got restored to. So now he's this you know billionaire, richest man in the world kind of thing, and he's got his family, Jason, Luke, and Tam, and um, who's the other? And Tiffany. Tiffany. Um, and uh, and his wife, obviously. I think his wife. What's his wife's name? Is his wife yeah. Sonia? I don't know. Uh, I yeah, remember. Tanya. Yeah, Tanya. That's right. Tanya. Tanya. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tanya, Tiffany, Tam, Tamara, <laughs> yeah. and then Jason Luke. So the three T's, Jason Luke, and then Lucius Fox. Uh, I have said, um, and not just because they're persons of color, um, but that probably why I make the, the comparison. I wasn't comparing it to Dynasty for you young listeners. That was a TV show back in the 80s when we used to have to watch network TV. <laughs> Stuff came on once a week, couldn't binge it all, and there were commercials. But anyway... Uh, the show Empire on Fox. I've never seen it, but in my mind, that's what this kind of reminds me of. Because again, it's focused on characters of color, and it's a it's a drama. It's a soap opera. It's family dynamics. It's uh, it's relationship stuff. And then, oh by the way, Jace Fox is also Batman. Batman in New York City, and that's really when this book has sort of taken off. Um, and not enough that Jace Fox relocated to New York City, but based on the needs of his sister, based on what his mother wanted to do, they all got out of Gotham, right? A little bit stretches credibility, but it's to the positive because it does, this book works a lot better when Jace Fox is further away from the shadow of Bruce Wayne Batman. Still don't like the fact that there's two Batmen, like either take Bruce out of the cowl or give Jace Fox a different name, but again, not a fan that there's Peter Parker and Miles Morales either. I love both characters. Just don't like it when there's two characters with the same name, but that's just a personal thing. But anyway, cliffhanger last issue, we found out that Tanya, Lucius Fox's wife, and the alleged mother of all his children <laughs> is not actually the mother of Jace Fox. Jace Fox's mother is somebody else. Lucius Fox had an affair with an employee, like this just gets worse and worse the more you talk about it. With an employee, he claims that it was a consensual relationship and the woman wasn't ready to have a child. She wasn't at a point in her career where she wanted to have a child or could have a child, didn't know if she could support him. 
Lucius didn't want her to terminate the pregnancy. So he said, hey, you know, he, he had to confess to his wife. They worked through it from everything we learned in this issue. And they took Jace and they basically adopted him or, took, you know, raised him as as their own. Right. Obviously, Lucius is the biological father and Tanya, and Jace always believed that Tanya was the biological mother. Turns out that's not the case. And then there's this other this group that somehow learned all these secrets of the of the Fox family. And you wonder how many other secrets are going to come to light. Right. Because Jace is not, you know, this angel either. He he killed somebody in a hit and run accident when he was 17 and ran, you know, ran away, ran away from the responsibility. Again, Lucius Fox using his money to kind of cover things up. So. You want to talk about like, you know, a soap opera. Yeah. So now we got illegitimate kids. We got, you know, extramarital affairs. We got all this stuff. And oh, by the way, Jace Fox is also Batman. (laughs) So this isn't, this isn't anything that I I didn't expect. And I I say that, you know, mentioning that last issue when the bombshell got dropped, you could see it coming. It was like, oh crap moment because Jace Fox didn't know. He did not know this. Now, I've never been in a situation. Thank God I've never been in the situation that Jace Fox is in. But that bombshell gets dropped on the last panel of last issue. And then we get to this issue, and he's acting like the biggest spoil, like, oh, woe is me. And he's a dick. Lied to me. And like, <laughs> dude, man up at some point, right? And he's like, well, how come you didn't tell me before? Like, well, you weren't old enough, right? You weren't really old enough. We wanted to wait till you're old enough to understand. And right around the time you're getting old enough to understand, you know, maybe we'll tell you when you're like 18, when you're 17, you get in a hit and run accident and and run (laughs) away. Like when exactly were we supposed to tell you? And based on his reaction, based on how he's handling this news, I can hardly blame Lucius Fox and Tanya for not telling him, right? Like in my mind, he really couldn't take the news worse unless he pulled out a gun and, you know, shot everybody. Like, I, I, I've I, lost a lot of respect for who Jace Fox is as as a person. Now, I know he's a fictional character or whatever, and I'm sure Ridley has a point to this, but <laughs> he's acting like such a little baby. And again, I haven't been through this, so I can't, you know, maybe I shouldn't be judging this guy, but like, you want to be Batman, you want to be a hero, you got to be the bigger person you know, sit back and think about all the things your family's done for you. And again, you know, there's layers to this and Ridley's definitely trying to say something, social commentary and haves and have nots, you know, are the Fox, is the Fox family better off because they have money? Well, yeah, if it had been just some random neighborhood guy that gotten hit and run, he probably would be in jail. Jace Fox was able to avoid that. You know, the baby might've been given up for adoption or the pregnancy might've been terminated. Jace Fox might not even exist. Um, but again, they have money and money solves a lot of problems. That's just the reality of the situation. That's just the reality of the world. It does, again, put a target on the Fox family. And that's what we see this sort of terrorist guy, King, who, who you know, fancies himself as this, this freedom fighter and this person who's going to, you know, give the Fox family uh, in general and Lucius Fox in particular what they deserve for what's happened. But it's interesting in this, in I would say in this issue, the superhero stuff, the superhero storylines have never been further in, in the back. And everything that's in the forefront is all the family drama and the political drama and the relationship drama. And if you like that stuff, you're really going to enjoy this. And if you are here to see, you know, Jace Fox throw around batarangs and fight against supervillains, then you're probably, you know, reading the wrong book. 
Um, but I think this works for me. This works. This is what this title should be because that is, I keep thinking back to that issue where Jace Fox took on Sinestro and how ridiculous that felt. Like Jace Fox is not in the same league with Sinestro and Sinestro would have wiped the floor with him in about five seconds. So this is what it should be. You could argue whether there should be some, you know, some other street level villains or you should be going after um, some other criminals. But I don't know. For me, this is working. Um, you know, as much as I didn't like Jace Fox's reaction, it is a compelling read. So, yeah, I, I think Ridley's doing a good job. And um, if if anything, any of all the titles at DC that have Batman in them, this feels the least like an actual Batman book, if if you take my meaning. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, what, what are your thoughts, Rocky? I like this. Uh, going after Ezekiel King wants to get revenge on the Foxes. Uh, kidnaps who he believes to be Jace Fox's mother. Uh, the revelation being that Jace Fox is surprised because that's not, not actually his mother. He doesn't think it is, but it actually is his mother. So even his enemy knows something about him that he doesn't. So I kind of like that. I, I agree with you. This is one of those things where, you know, if you listen to the general DC comic community fan commentary on I am Batman. It's got, a, it's, it's somewhat divisive. It's got a lot of mixed reviews. And uh, I think that, I think in fairness, if, you know, comparatively speaking to uh, quite a few stinkers that we've reviewed from DC in 2022, I think I am Batman comes up certainly above, slightly above the middle of the pack at a minimum, because this, this has been generally fairly decent storytelling and very good character work with the Fox family. I know that initially when out of future state, I know that, you know, the, the, the Fox family shenanigans didn't resonate well with you, but I've picked up sort of the impression from you that it's even started to, you know, it's, it's grown slightly better. And it, you know, we, we've gotten to know this family such that, uh, and you, you made a very astute uh, comment about Jace Fox here. He is kind of a dick here, but that's kind of what endears me to him here because he, I can tell he says at one point, it's not my family, not my problem. I know he doesn't really mean that. Of course, he's going to try to save the woman as Batman. He's just pissed off. And, and yeah, he's, hurt. Right, he's hurt. He's hurt. Exactly. He's hurt. So yeah. It's not because he's an ass. He's an a-hole. It's because he's genuinely hurt. That's what comes across. And that's a very fine line. That's a very hard line to toe when you're a writer. But it's been building to this. The family dysfunction and the BS that, that his father, Lucius Fox, and his mother, the games that they sort of played, and the way that even if they were well-intentioned, the way everything came to a head with the with out of future state, the the, the uh, temporary paralysis of uh, of their the sister uh, with the issues with his with his brother uh, all the all the machinations of him as, as Batman in Gotham and then coming to New York City uh, the issues of race and, and and color and racism in the in the New York City Police Department and how that impacted him uh, there are so many moving parts here with the question Renee Montoya coming in getting said she was like a mentor mentee and. All of this is sort of building to the head of Jace Fox finding his own way. And literally, he's literally finding his own origins here. This is Jace Fox finding his origin and in many ways finding his place. Not only did he essentially pirate the uh, identity of Batman, and maybe that's too harsh a word, but he kind of did. He sort of sort of just sort of took the mantle of Batman and Bruce Wayne sort of let him have it. So there's two of them. He To, to find out that he actually is not even sure he, who his own... He, he, his own mother, I think that sort of, 
it's it's sort of the icing on the cake and and damned if it doesn't work here and you know it's funny we we get to the end here and it ends up there's this new it looks like a new character called nobody that shows up um that that seems to rescue uh i guess batman and prevent ezekiel king from from uh killing batman and um uh, what what I find interesting about that is I'm not sure if this character is called Nobody. Uh, there is a character called Nobody that that was in the pages of of Robin. I mean, I think it was Robinson's old nemesis, old, ne- old nemesis that actually became, I think, an ally of of Damian Wayne back in the Robin series. Nobody, and even during I think the Batman and Robin run, if I remember correctly, a character called Nobody, uh, and then Nobody it was a, it was a male character, and they had Nobody had a, a, a daughter. I don't know if you remember that, but I'm 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 curious if this particular character, this nobody character that shows up at the end, is this an actual new character, or is this is this a character that came from Gotham and is related to the old one? But in in any event, I'm I'm not sure. But, a, I got a little bit of a question vibe just based on the the mask, but I, yeah, it's certainly not Renee Montoya. You know, mask and trench coat, even. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's 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 different. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose. Well, yeah. So, oh, you think it could be Renee Montoya behind that? I don't think I don't think it's Renee Montoya. Yeah. But you know, when I first saw it, I was like, huh. I mean, yeah. it, it has a little bit of a look of a of the female question. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it does. At first, I, when I when you look at the upper body, I thought maybe it was a man, and then in the lower body, it's wearing heels. So, <laughs> so obviously, yeah. it's a woman, or who knows, right? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> this is 21st century comics after all. But uh, in any event, I I enjoyed this. I thought this was going to be the last issue, but do we have one issue left? Or is this series – I thought the series was canceled. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'll have to look that up. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. I just – for some reason, I, I didn't think I Am Batman was going to be – was going to continue past this issue or past 18 anyway. But uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that. I, I, got, I got no issue with more uh, Jace Fox's Batman. But, uh, but no, I, good character work this issue. And, you know, I'm really liking the art. Christian Doucet and Eduardo Panseco and Julio Ferrer, the artists, uh, considering that all three of them work together, they work together quite well. And uh, kudos to Rex Lucas on Locus on the colors. Yeah, eighteen. Next issue is the final issue. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so uh, okay. Up next, Danger Street, book two, chapter two. The Green Team. Tom King is the writer. Jorge Farnes is the artist. Dave Stewart on colors. Clayton Cal on letters. Um, this continues to be a book where you can just tell that Tom King's just having a lot of fun uh, with these very <laughs> obscure characters. Um, <laughs> It's fun. Like I'm not that familiar with um, with the Thomas Mickle version of Starman, but when you get these these books that have these kind of obscure characters, it does. You know, even for someone like me who's been reading DC comics for decades, it can you know send me down a rabbit hole. So yeah, I spent a little bit of time earlier this week going back and reading some some issues with this version of Starman in them, and. Uh, you know, reading up on the history. So Starman, this version of Starman, yeah, showed up in, in first issue spectacular as all these characters did. And first is- issue spectacular for those that aren't familiar was this, this way for DC to, to get some value and get some use out of some like inventory stories. They had some, some possible series that were going to launch at one point, And then the DC implosion implosion happened. And it's like, well, Hey, what are we going to do with this? There's, you know, all these first, first issues, but no second issues of all these different books, you know, what should we, 
what should we do with them? Well, we'll just publish this thing called, you know, first issue spectacular and, you know, maybe people will buy it. And so that's where a lot of these uh, characters come from. So uh, it's enjoyable, you know, leave it to Tom King to take these characters that were, were honestly not really that invested in um, and make something interesting out of it. Uh, and so I hope you guys all had uh, a chance to listen to my interview with Tom um, about this and uh, and where it goes from here. You know, we're going to have to wait and see, but I, I'm really enjoying it. And I think the, the choice of Jorge Fornes as artist was, uh, was a good one um, because this is a grounded story. And I think it, it works um, with that kind of, I don't want to say simple art, but it's a more, it's a more subdued style of art. You know, it's not big and, and over the top and boisterous, even though, you know, we do have superheroes here. But what happens, <coughs> excuse me, what happens is with that style of art that's a little more realistic um, is it allows the emotions of the story to come through. You know, we get this this real sense of loss from the dingbats of Danger Street, you know, having lost good looks, you know, this preteen boy that was a member of their gang. Um, obviously the emotion that Starman is, is feeling for accidentally killing this kid is kind of overwhelming. And, you know, Warlord is trying to, to tell him, Travis Morgan's trying to tell him, Hey, you know, you, you got to fight through this. You got, so that's a very, you know, despite the fact that Warlord is maybe one of the most fantastical DC characters, you know, think back to the classic Mike Grell stuff where he's in Scarticus, which is, you know, in this hollow center of the earth and he's fighting against prehistoric monsters and all that stuff. It's like super fantasy, you know, like Frank Frazetta type stuff. Um, and here, here he is telling Starman, put on a brave face, fight through it, what have you. It's realistic with a character that's maybe the, one of the least realistic characters in DC. Uh, and so I just, I find that juxtaposition to be really interesting. Um, and there's plenty of mystery too. We don't know exactly like what, why is the green team so set on uh, on fighting against the outsiders? Like, what is that all about? Um, there's just there's so many different layers to this story, and uh, not least of which is why at some point does Highfather and Darkseid what they meet and Highfather mentions that. At, you know, Atlas has been taken, he's missing, the sky is falling, and they embrace. Like, I never thought I'd read a story where Highfather and, and Darkseid would embrace. So, uh, again, yeah. very intriguing, very interesting. And well, well, remember really- that Remember that Tom King did have Darkseid eat veggies off a veggie tray in Mr. Miracle. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> we never that thought we'd see that well. either. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah, fair point, fair point. So, yeah, I don't know where this is going to go, but it's – it's a credit to Tom King and Jorge Fornes, I think, that you can have characters as obscure as th- these characters are, including Lady Cop, and and craft such an intriguing story. Like, you know, typically if, if there are characters that are this obscure, like, well, I don't care about any of those characters. Why am I going to care about the story? And that's kind of the furthest thing from what we're having here. Like, I feel myself getting pulled in like more and more to these characters. Just great, great character work, great emotional storytelling, I thought. So uh, what did you think? I, I really enjoy it. This is a slow build. I'm enjoying this. And, you know, it's the, it's the, it's those little moments of, of character and um, 
of 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 attitude and almost an undercurrent of evil and narcissism in some of these scenes, particularly with the green team that, that really hit home here because uh, I did listen to your interview, great interview with Tom King. And, and uh, in a nutshell, what I got out of it is Tom King said, he said, these are all sort of seemingly disconnected stories that are going to slowly come together as, as the series progresses. And you can kind of see hints of that. And, and so that's, and that's not a spoiler. That's just kind of cool to know because that way we're being told, okay, this is what we can maybe kind of expect, but we don't know how those pieces are going to be moved into place. Uh, This green team, this, this green team of young billionaires are, they hired the creeper. They hired Jack Ryder. They don't know Jack Ryder's the creeper. They hired Jack Ryder. Who's in communications. He's sort of like a, talk show host they want they want him to talk to blame a lot of what's going on on these outsiders and i think the green team is setting up and, and creating all these explosions and uh and blame and wants jack Ryder to blame it on the outsiders meanwhile jack Ryder, as the creeper is investigating the outsiders and he comes across this guy mr nat and and of course, uh, he, he, he asks Mr. Nat, he scares Mr. Nat into trying to find out more about the outsiders. And there's a fantastic scene that I just love in, uh, near, near the, uh, near the end where Jack, where the young green team member has, uh, Mr. Nat, this, this guy tied up in front of him and he's talking to Jack Ryder and he whispers to Mr. Nat, he says, just, just one second, Mr. Nat, be right with you. And then he, he's talking to Jack Ryder. And I don't think he knows that Jack Ryder's the creeper, but Jack Ryder, if he heard what that kid whispered saying, Mr. Nat, I'll be right with you. The kid then, you know, gives the motion saying, just a minute, uh, you're going to hear a loud noise. And then the, you know, Jack Ryder can hear what sounds like a gunshot through the phone and he tells him that he's in a mechanical shop and that's just a car backfiring basically. And, you know, you got to wonder if Jack Ryder as the creeper, he knows the difference between a gunshot and, and a car backfiring and the, the narcissism and, and the, the, and the, this kid doesn't care. He, he, he has completely indifferent to the life of this guy and he's, he's using Jack Ryder. And I got to wonder if Jack Ryder can see through it because he's, you know, he's whispering up to Mr. Nat and, and Jack Ryder's looking, you know, sort of asked Mr. Nat to look in on it. And you got to wonder what's going on behind the scenes. How, what characters know what? Meanwhile, you got Lady Cop investigating the death of Good Looks, member of the Dingbats. We saw the, we saw the funeral of the Dingbats at the beginning and the other Dingbat members, uh, non-fat, crunch and, uh, crunchy and bananas. They, they want to avenge him. They want to find out who killed their good friend, good looks, and, and they want to kill him, whoever it was. And, of course, they don't know it's Starman who's with Warlord, and he feels guilty about it. And, and all these things, how, how does all this tie together? It's not clear. But I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued enough by this that I'm intrigued enough by it. I, I can tell you already, this is a hell of a lot more entertaining. Some of those uh, first issue specials, I own the Creeper one and the Metamorpho one uh, and the Warlord one, um, First Appearance Warlord, First Appearance Creeper. Uh, but some of them are really badly written, like really badly written. This is infinitely better written than any of those first issue stories was. So I'm glad that Tom King is sort of redeeming that particular era of DC Comics. I too own an issue of uh, first issue special. Only one. Yeah. Um, it's a lady cop. <laughs> I own a lady cop. Uh, I and think I don't that's know the most valuable, where. I think. 
I don't know where I got it from. I don't know where it came from, but yeah, I, I, I have <laughs> it. So for whatever good that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. You bring up a good point about the, um, the green team and, and they're one of the, they're one of the only, I think, uh, characters that, that have appeared in, uh, first issue special that, that had a recent series, right? Like Warlord yeah. appeared there. But he, I think you know, Gail he, Simone wrote that series. Didn't Gail Simone write that? Green yeah, I think Gail Simone wrote. Yeah. I think they even, they even had a series during new 52, if I'm not, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. So, um, I don't know that. I actually don't know that much about, about them. Um, so I don't either. I am kind of curious. I mean, I know they're kids. They have a lot of money. Um, but I, I, I thought they were more heroic than yes, not. So, so based, on, based, on, <laughs> based on this, it's like they're basically QAnon with money. It's kind of seems like, you know, they're, they're promoting conspiracy theories and they're blatant about it and they own, you know, media company and, and what have you. So as, uh, as he often does, Tom King is definitely, you know, commenting on, on things politically. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Lazarus Planet Alpha. Uh, so this spins out of the Batman Robin series, which spun out of the Robin solo series by Joshua Williamson. Uh, and also the first story arc in Mark Wade's um, World's Finest. Starring Batman and Robin with art by Dan Mora. So you take everything that happened in in uh, in the Robin series. You take what Mark Wade did with the Demon Nezha in the beginning of his World's Finest series. You get Ricardo Federici to digitally paint it, draw it. Brad Anderson does the colors. Steve Wan's on letters. And this is what you get. So we know, based on everything that happened in the Batman and Robin series, that the Demon Nezha was able to take over a bunch of the um, magical users of the DC universe. He sent them out to retrieve all these magical artifacts. They brought them to Lazarus Island. He, uh, Nezha used Black Alice to remove all the magical power from those various artifacts and infuse all that power into the Dr. Fate helmet. And then I, I was never quite clear what Nezha, and maybe Rocky can remind me what Nezha's end goal was, but before he could do whatever he was going to do, Batman was able to free Damien from Nezha's control. There was actually a really cool moment in the Batman versus Robin series where Batman put on the Dr. Fate helmet and Nezha wasn't defeated, but whatever Nezha's plan was, was thwarted because the other aspect that got pulled in here. Um, and I, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about the monkey Prince series from Gene Luen Yang and Bernard Chang. Um, but that's pulled in as well because we saw these different mythological Chinese figures show up there, this gold horn, the silver horn, all these different um, kind of evil spirits and what have you um, that the monkey prince has been fighting against. And now they, sh they show up along with what, – what's the guy's name? Red Firebull? Fire Red Bull. Uh, King, King Firebull. Yeah. There we go. King Firebull. I'm thinking Red Bull, the energy drink probably. Um, but anyway, yeah, he shows up at the end and kind of kicks Nezha's butt. And so it seems like there's some there's some sort of magical uh, fight going on that doesn't have anything to do with the heroes of the DC universe. It, it's Nezha against King Firebull, 
Monkey Prince is involved, obviously, because of his, his heritage and his father, the Monkey King. So what does that all mean? So you throw all that in and you have this action-packed series. Now, I, I could not – I suppose it's possible that I could have been less excited for this Lazarus uh, Lazarus <laughs> Planet series. Um, the other thing is that it you know feels a little bit derivative. We've seen some, some art and um, been told that – yeah. When this volcano explodes, it's going to kind of release this energy into the DC universe and we're going to get mashups. And we saw, you know, some pictures of, you know, Dr. Fate mashed up with Batman and Martian Manhunter mashed up, I think with Doomsday it was. So anyway, I was like, man, this really feels like the Infinity Warps thing from Marvel um, where they mashed a bunch of characters, Captain America and Dr. Fate or uh, uh, Dr. Strange and, you know, some others. Um, But it also feels a little bit like, Avengers versus X-Men when, or or Avengers versus Inhumans. I don't know. Whatever series it was when the Terrigen Mist got released all around the world and then people, some people reacted to it and they found out, oh, I actually have inhuman heritage or ancestry and that's why the Terrigen Mist affected me and I have powers that I didn't know I had. So, you know, same kind of thing here, right? Like the volcano explodes, it causes this magical rain and there's all these normal people in the DC universe that are being affected by the magical rain. So again, the story just sounded like it was pulling pieces of this and put pieces of that and mashing it up together. And you add in the fact that it's a bunch of magical users where I find the magical corner of the DC universe to be the least interesting. A lot of it to do with the fact, well, it's magic. And if you write yourself into a corner, you just have Dr. Fate snap his fingers or Zatanna say, fix everything backwards and everything's fixed. Like that's not, that's not really interesting to me. So all that being said, you know, much like um, the Joker Batman Deadly Duo issue this week, I wasn't really excited to, to read this. Cue Mark Wade, right? Mark Wade's going to come in and go, well, you might not have been too excited, but I'm going to really – Hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, hold my beer. I'm going to really show these characters at their best, right? I'm going to lean into the ideas of heroism and sacrifice I'm going to put Batman on the back burner. When does that ever happen, right? This is a big, huge crisis, and Batman's in no shape to really give orders or plan things or whatever, so he takes a back seat to Damien, and when the heroes gather within the first few pages of here, everyone's looking to Batman like, okay, what's the strategy? What's the plan? What are we going to do? And Batman says, what we're going to do, you're going to listen to my son because he can barely talk, and Damien gets to have his moment. Again, I'm not the biggest Damien fan, but at least it's something different. You know, there might be other aspects of the story that are derivative, but that's something new and that's something fresh. Now, whether or not you can buy Damien as a leader, I mean, the kid's been training for this, you know, since birth, basically. So, you know, he's got just as much of a strategic and, or tactical mind as Bruce does. So I think it works on that level. Uh, and yeah, just seeing the interactions. This is an event that's done well. Like Mark Wade knows how to do events, right? Like I know a lot of people didn't like the last few big DC events. We certainly didn't care for Future State. And you could make the argument that, that really wasn't an event, but you know something like Dark Knight's Death Metal, where everything was just thrown at the wall, and there wasn't really enough real estate to to tell the story that needed to be told. As opposed to this, where you know it's it's sort of a classic event feel, where Damien, you know, to go back to our point about Batman Incorporated, Damien's going, okay, Power Girl, Blue Devil. Mary Marvel, like, you know, we know who's who. It's a little more new reader friendly. You guys are going to go do this. And then this group of heroes, you guys are going to go do this. And then, you know, Monkey Prince and I are going to stay here with Batman and this is going to be our mission. And so it it has that classic feel. Harkens back to something like Crisis on Infinite Earths, you know, the 
argument could be made that's the event that, that kicked off the idea of events in comics, cr- big crossover events where, yeah, you had all these various heroes that were going out on different missions, doing different things. So very classic feel, really enjoyable, despite the fact that it's magic. Um, I really enjoyed it. Now, Rocky, you mentioned earlier the Ricardo Federici art and how amazing it was or is in this issue. Yeah. And I would say for the most part, I agree with you. Um, however, as amazing as Federici's art is, and again, it is amazing. I just love the texture of it, especially. And I love the way he lays out panels, um, you know, where he chooses to put the camera. My only complaint, my only complaint about the art <clears throat> is the faces. And it's not that he draws faces poorly. It's just there's no consistency. Like you'll see Supergirl on one page and then you see her three pages later and her face looks completely different. Like that's the only thing that really bugs me. And you can really see it. There's a scene where Mary Marvel and Zatanna and Power Girl are all trying to break into the Tower of Fate and you get kind of a side profile of Power Girl and it just doesn't look at all like Power Girl. Um, And I don't know, maybe it's that her boobs are too small also. Um, But anyway, the side (laughs) profile doesn't look anything like her. It looks like the lower part of her face like juts out a lot. And then you, you know, you go a few pages later um, with another scene with Power Girl and she looks like much more like what we expect Power Girl to to look like. Um, And she's grabbing uh, like one of the silver horn uh, lackeys and she's like flying off. Um, and it looks more like the Karen star that we're, we're used to. So again, it's a minor nitpick. Um, I think his art is amazing, but yeah, I think he needs to work a little bit on the consistency of, of faces. So the same person looks the same, you know, from, from panel to panel, from page to page. Um, but overall, I, this really surprised me how much I enjoyed this. It actually has, it actually has me excited for, uh, for the rest of this series. Now, there's also a big checklist that's in here. And I am a little worried uh, because Mark Waite is not, there's no way he can write everything, right? Um, there's a bunch of one shots and, uh, and tie-ins. Um, but I do hope that we get, uh, <clears throat> that we get a consistent feel and a consistent tone throughout. Uh, there's also a backup story. I'll just comment on it real quick. Nezha and the Monkey King, and it basically gives us some background on Monkey King and Nezha and their previous relationship. Because one of the things that happens in the main story is Robin, one, you know, he sends people to the tower of fate to try to retrieve the artifacts and they're going to have black Alice try to remove the power that's imbued in uh, the helm of fate and put them back in the magical artifacts and use those artifacts to fight against red bull King guy, um, fire bull King. And, uh, and the other thing is like, hey, Nezha got his butt kicked. So maybe he'd be willing to team up, right? Like we don't completely trust him, but you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of thing. And so they think that they might be able to recruit Nezha to uh, to fight against the Fireball Demon. So um, some of that relationship and, and the antagonism that those um, that those two have the relationship between Monkey King, uh, Monkey Prince's father, and Nezha, and uh, King Bull Demon is sort of explained in the backup. And it's written by Jean Luen Yang, who, you know, he knows this stuff 
inside and out in terms of, um, you know, he's the one that's been writing the monkey prince story and establishing the mythos of the, the monkey prince in, in DC comics. And, uh, the artist is Billy Tan, uh, for the backup. Sebastian Chang is a colorist, same one that's been doing the colors for the monkey Prince series. And Janice Chang, uh, is doing the letters and she's the letter that we've, that we've had in the regular series. So I imagine Bernard Chang probably wanted to do this backup, but is busy doing the regular series. So, uh, that's probably why we had a different artist, but, um, I, I appreciated it because it did give some context and it was interesting to see the demon Nessa. He has this red sash that he wears and it allows him to, his, him to take on the appearance of like a young, very innocent looking boy. And he seems kind of, he's not super bitter. And, uh, I don't know, like not that Nezha seemed completely evil. He seemed more megalomaniacal to me. Like he wants power for power's sake. Um, and again, I'm not, I don't completely remember. So Rocky can remind me, but it's interesting that he gives up the sash and takes on, allows him to take on the more demonic appearance. Um, it was kind of almost a noble or well-intentioned act by Nishan. So yeah, will, I just can't imagine them teaming up with Nishan is going to go well. So maybe, it, you know, it's one of those team ups. that's only going to last as long as it takes to defeat the, the Red Bull guy. So we'll yeah. see how it plays out. But anyway, what are your thoughts on this series, Rocky? What a fantastic way to start this off. Uh, I started off on the assumption because I wasn't going to make the same, uh, have any kind of cynicism because I had big hopes for world's finest and I was world's finest and I was proven right on that. Uh, there was naysayers even up to issues two or three of world's finest. Uh, and we, we loved it. It was great. And I, 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 I call this, this is great too. I, I also call out anybody who says this nonsense. Oh, it's just like this Marvel story. It's just like this. Bullshit. This is, this feels totally different. This is far superior. Don't compare this to Marvel. DC's not out of ideas. It's never been done this way like at DC before. This is fantastic. I love this. This is, and this, this is so well done. This is beautifully illustrated. It, it is exciting. It's, uh, and it's magic. Like, like you said, so many people are sick of magic in the DCU or, or rather they don't like it. It's not interesting. This is interesting to me. This is actually interesting. And uh, to answer your question, there's a little bit of backup. The reason why uh, the demon Nezha wants to gain all that power, he was collecting all the magic. He was uh, from all the artifacts. He was using Black Alice to collect all the magic in, 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 into Lazarus Island. He wanted to collect all that magic to become powerful because he wanted to ultimately kill his son, who was King Red Bull. That's what he, that's what, uh, or pardon me, King Bullfire. That's what he wanted to do to defeat, uh, King, pardon me, King Fireball. Jesus, King Fireball. And so that, that's what Nezra's big thing was. But King Fireball interrupted that on Lazarus Island. The volcano exploded. And now we've got magic and science gone awry. So magic based superpowers, science based superpowers, everything has gone completely awry. What we learn in the backup, and I'll deal with the backup first because it actually makes chronologically more sense, is that we learn that when the mighty Nezha, before he was the demon Nezha, he was the mighty Nezha. And when he was younger, the monkey prince, the monkey prince, he was friends with the monkey prince, or I guess the monkey prince's father. Uh, they were, they were actually kind of frenemies. They call themselves, you know, they were, they were neither friends nor enemies. And they end up going against a, a, a king bull demon. And ultimately they de defeat this king bull demon who was subsequently killed by dark side in Monkey King issue zero, and there's the son of King Bull Demon is this red boy, and 
the Mighty Nessa adopted Red Boy, who grew up to become King Fireball. And what we don't know is what happened to cause a breakup between father and adopted son. So King, uh, the demon Nezha is the father and his adopted son is King Fireball, who used to be Red Boy. And the Red Sash you referred to, actually, when, when Nezha was younger, I, when he was the mighty Nezha, this red sash that he wore helped him helped him keep his sanity. It helped. It prevented the dark influence of of his power from taking control of him. And it, it's an open question in the backup that mighty Nezha asks himself at the end. Well, I I chose to. I chose to take the sash back because when he when he wasn't wearing the sash, he transforms into like the big mighty demon Nezha. But when he has the sash, he he's back into this sort of like his calm exterior young boy. And so that's that's interesting. So maybe all hope is not lost for Nezha. And going to the initial series proper, I love how Damien steps up to the plate. Batman is still recovering. Batman, the only reason Batman wasn't killed is, is that he managed to absorb some aspects of the Lazarus resin that were infused in him in, in the battle with, with the demon Nezha and King Fireball. And when the volcano exploded, the com- there's thunderstorms, firestorms, uh, there's typhoons all over the planet. And they're, they're, they got to fight on two fronts. They got to go to the Tower of Fate where Damien, Damien uh, uh, directs Shazam, Zatanna, Power Girl to the Tower of Fate because it's the Tower of Fate where they suspect all the magic users were, were being stored because you know, because Black Alice absorbed all the powers of the all the magic users in the DC universe, their magic was stripped from them from back Black Alice with the help of uh, King King Fireball, and in, in a just a I think just an epic scene through all this amazing art. You know, Mary Marvel Shazam. Uh, you know, she says Shazam and the lightning bolt hits the Tower of Fate and it cracks open and all these magic users show up. And I think it's just an epic scene because the fighting chance is there. And I got to tell you something. I loved uh, just to show uh, as much as I love the DC Universe. I can't name all the magic users in that page. I know there's Timothy Hunter from the Vertical series. Uh, there's Ragman. There's the Phantom Stranger, Alan Scott, Green Lantern. There's John Constantine. There's at least five or six that I'm not sure who they are. So I'm going to be on Wikipedia sort of Googling it and what have you later. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you that. Um, the ones you didn't mention, we've got Clarion the Witch Boy. Yeah. Uh, we've got... I think to the left of him, Mandarin the Magician. Yep, that makes sense. And then to the left of that, it's, I mean, Abracadabra, not really, he's more of science, like, yeah, super science from the future that look like magic. So I'm not sure on that one either. Um, all the way in the back next to Constantine uh, with the green hood, isn't that the villain? I can't remember his name. The villain from Amethyst. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Dark Opal. Yeah. Dark, Dark Opal, Opal? I think. could be, could yeah. be. That makes sense. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, I'm not, isn't there, didn't DC, DC has a character named Jack-O-Lantern, right? He was part of the yeah. Global Guardians. That's, That's right. That's gotta be who the Flaming Skull guy is. Yeah. Um, that makes and sense. did you mention, did you mention Enchantress? I, uh, well, no, I, there's a lot I didn't mention, but yeah. Enchantress is there and Jinx is behind yeah. her. Yep. So the guy with the backwards hat. Don't know the g- girl behind That's him. That's Jakeem Thunder. That's Jakeem Thunder, I think. Okay, so the, the girl with the sunglasses and like the the flaming sh- shoulders. Don't know the, <laughs> yeah. the person just to the right of Phantom Stranger with the pan flute. 
You have any idea who that I, girl is? I, I don't know. I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking Pied Piper, but I mean, that's like, that's like, a, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. even think that's that a character, like a, is it? Yeah, it looks like a woman. And then, yeah. yeah, all the way, like the bluish tinged person in the back with a little heart on the cheek. Don't know. And next to that, like, where's Cersei? Like, is that, could that be Cersei in the back with the dark hair? Could be. Yeah. And, and witch doctor guy with the skull on his head. So yeah, I was, I, and the bald woman in the middle. Yeah. No yeah. idea. I hope we do find out. I, I want like a black and white version of this with a little like, you know, uh, character index so I can know who's who, but yeah, yeah I was going to ask you if you knew who some of these people were, because I'm not, I'm not sure. Also, uh, where's, um, where's Bobo, right? Like, isn't he the one that has like the sword now? Nightmaster sword that Phantom Stranger's holding for some reason. So, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Regardless, Question. it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic page. Yeah, no, it, 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 it is. It's, it's a great page, and I just, uh, it just, it, it feels like. I can feel the stakes. I, I, I felt that this was, that there was a lot of, uh, I felt the gravitas here. And I actually wonder, I'm really hoping that Federici uh, on the art here, Federici, I hope that if, I hope this is the reason why he was taken off Action Comics, War World. I, I, I liked his art on War World. I know some people, you know, you know I, I wish it would have stayed consistent on War World. But if he was taken off of War World, Action Comics for this series, good. That was a good choice because I, I like this series better than War World already because it involves all the heroes that I know and love and even some that I love trying to figure out who they are. Uh, this is just – this sort of rem just tickles my, my fancy here in the little boy in me. And and I should say at the Tower of Fate, they battled the Silver Horn King and then they battled the Gold Horn King – uh, in the Himalayas, uh, Batman, Talia, Blue Devil fight the Gold Golden Horn King in the Himalayas, and Supergirl fight uh, the Golden Horn King in uh, the Himalayas, where they meet up with Poison Ivy or Swamp Thing, where they uh, discover that uh, the demon Nezha is actually uh, significantly weakened, <clears throat> weakened, <clears throat> and we know that the demon Nezha has a much more difficult time possessing Kryptonians because they're much more difficult to control because they're Kryptonian. And so we have we, we have all this machinations going on. We have a powered up Batman with sort of like this this Lazarus resin and maybe some deep sort of black magic at the end. He even says nefariously, I'm better than ever. So I don't know what to expect here, but the teases here are just fantastic. I, I don't, I'm loving this. I, I'll straight up say it that I... Every, of course, comic books are subjective. People will judge for themselves, but I gotta say, man, I I truly feel that if you if if I think if somebody doesn't love this and is not compelled to want to pick up the next issue, I think you're crazy. I mean, I I think if I don't know how how you could not love this. If you're a DC fan, I don't know how you cannot want to pick up the next series. And frankly, read the back issues. If my God, I mean, I I'm I'm just loving this, and and the way it all comes together so well. And, and just, I feel rewarded for reading The Monkey King. I feel rewarded for reading World's Finest. I feel rewarded for reading this. I feel rewarded for my loyalty to these particular series. This is the payoff that I want and that I'm looking for. Bottom line, man, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm singing his praises. This is by far my pick of the week. Big spoiler alert there. Anyways, off my, off my yeah, soapbox. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I mean, like I said, I'm not a big fan of the magic users of the DCU, and even I enjoyed this. Yeah. I'm sure there's going to be people out there that don't enjoy it, but I don't know. If you like comics, you like superhero comics, I would think that you would like this because it's a great example of uh, 
of how you do a big crossover with tons of characters. So, Uh, okay. Up next, we have human target issue number 10. This is written by Tom King, fantastic art by Greg Smallwood, Clayton Callan letters. Um, yeah, I mean, this series continues to be great. And, uh, Nort is the, the member of JLI that shows up in this particular issue. Uh, and I'll let you take it away from there, Rocky. <laughs> well, we know, uh, we know from, uh, Following the these misadventures of Christopher Chase, a man who unfortunately at his last job hired by to protect Lex Luthor, uh, he manages to save Lex Luthor's life, but he ends up getting shot with the uh, with a bullet that was intended shot with a poison that was intended for Lex Luthor, and he's got twelve days to live. And we know that ultimately Christopher Chase is going to die. But before he dies, Christopher Chase is uh, wants to figure out essentially who murdered him or who attempted to kill Lex Luthor. And it would appear that he's pieced together most of it through the series so far. Uh, while this series with fantastic art by Greg Smallwood, I mean, quite frankly, Tom King, the I mean, this story in anybody, any other artist's hands, we wouldn't we could maybe wouldn't be reading it because it's just the art is absolutely fantastic. The love affair between Christopher Chance and Ice is spectacular. We know, we know from the past issues that Ice in trying to protect, thought maybe fire had done it, was, was trying to protect Ice that, 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 and that ultimately, uh, and then we, First, we thought maybe Ice was, was a suspect. Then Fire was a suspect. And then we know that uh, a Guy Gardner played a role. And that was Guy Gardner that uh, played a role in trying to poison Lex. Uh, or at least that's what it appears to be. And we know that Guy Gardner was supposedly killed. But it appears that Guy Gardner is still alive. Or at least Christopher Chance is certain that, that Guy Gardner is still alive. He's looking for him. And this Gnort, <laughs> the Green Lantern Gnort shows up, I don't know if I'm saying that right. And he basically helps uh, Christopher Chance locate Guy Gardner. And uh, just a lot of crazy, just a, the, the sort of standard dialogue that you've been, uh, the, the sort of repertoire, the back and forth, the banter with these characters, with, uh, with, all these characters essentially from Justice League and from the Justice League International series, and Gnort was certainly one of them. And I love the fact that they end up at uh, Keith and Kevin, or Kevin and Keith's billiard hall, which uh, was a nice callback, I'm sure, to Kevin McGuire and Keith Giffen, who are the writers and artists of, for the Justice League International. And there, it's obviously inside, of course, is where they find Guy Gardner. Christopher Chance is there, confronts Guy, and. Uh, but before they get there, Christopher wants to, in locating, in locating him, trying to figure out where Guy Gardner is, they end up going to Oa of all places. And that's why Gnort's in the early part of the issues. And, uh, they look at the, uh, where, and there's some, some moving scenes where Christopher Chance sees the records on Oa, where they got a record of all the living beings in the universe, including Guy Gardner and including Christopher Chance himself. And he reviews that and, and he, he reviews Guy Gardner's record and he, his life, because your entire life is laid out in the, in the records of the, of Oa. Now, I don't know if this is actually accurate. Uh, Tom King, obviously uh, this is, you have to relax your mind a little bit here. If uh, there, are, I'm sure there are going to be some people that are going to, you know, who have from the beginning missed the point of this series, probably just get all upset that 
maybe they think that the guardians don't have records of every life form in the universe. They might even get upset that God forbid, uh, Christopher Chance kicks one of the guardians in the face, kicks him, knocks him out. Uh, I, I love how Christopher Chance defeats Guy Gardner in this issue. I thought it was quite, I thought it was quite brilliant. I'm sure people who are Green Lantern fans are going to be really upset about that, using Guy Gardner's allergy against them, using his narcissism and his insecurity against them. I thought it was brilliant. I, I and but you have to you have to take this, understand that this is premised on an iteration of Guy Gardner. If you have read Justice League International, albeit that was maybe 30 years ago, this is really based on a Guy Gardner from that interpretation, whether you want, whether you like it or not. If you're a fan of Guy Gardner who has evolved, uh, you like the present iteration of Guy Gardner and you think he's become a better person over the last 30 years, uh, then you're probably going to be less inclined to like uh, this issue. I loved it. I hate Guy Gardner. I love to hate Guy Gardner. I love the character, but I love to hate him. He's a jerk. That's 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 his appeal, and he's treated like a jerk here. And Christopher Chance makes uh, quick uh, quick meat of him. Uh, I like the way that it's been dealt with. I, I like I like the way this this issue progressed. I'm not even going to at this point if this is consistently, and I I've read another article. I can't remember where, but it was a collection of. Uh, uh, it was like 10 different retailers talking about some of their best anecdotally, some of their what's selling off their off the shelves and human target is one of them. And, you know, there are certain voices on the, on the internet that just really will be Tom King detractors, but uh, this is a fantastic series. And if you're not reading this, I, I think people are absolutely insane not to read this. Just absolutely nuts absolutely nuts it's not just the art the writing is great too this is good writing it possesses verisimilitude i like the fact at the ending here confronting ice that ice might have more to do with what's going on than she let on and on how on how all these pieces come into play this is just this is rewarding uh, this is a decompressed story but it's a decompressed story in order to allow us to get beautiful art and witness this beautiful love story, 60s James Bond style. Uh, and it's such a rich reward for readers if you just stick with it. And um, yeah, I mean, once again, just an, another another great issue and another another great, great small word contribution to comic book history. What do you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. Um, Nort is exactly who you expect him to be. He's funny. You expect him to be that, and Tom King doesn't doesn't disappoint in that regard. Um, I will say, you know, you mentioned, you know, Ice May. According to Christopher Chance, she hundred percent knows why Guy Gardner faked his death because <laughs> she asked him to. So that's right. What yeah. the reasoning, what the motivation behind that is, you know, we've yet to to find out. But if you listen to that aforementioned interview with Tom King, you'll know that. I mean, he basically said on the on the podcast when I was talking to him, you know, about the backlash he got for killing Guy Gardner. It's like, okay, first of all, this is comics. Um, second of all, you know, this is a story starring Christopher Chance, and you know, this is a guy that fakes his death for a living. <laughs> yeah, I know, you and know, he's right. He's one hundred percent right on that. Yeah, what makes you think that Guy Gardner's, you know, <laughs> hasn't you know faked his death here? So that's exact. That's exactly what appears to yeah. to have happened. So yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm not going to add too much more other than to say I, I'm I'm intrigued how this is all going to play out. And also keep in mind that this is Black Label, right? So 
it doesn't necessarily, you know, that, that's how I sort of took it. I'm like, well, if this is black label, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't kill Guy Gardner, right? Like you, yeah. you could if it's black label and it, you know, it doesn't. So anyway, um, yeah, like you said, anybody who's not reading this, I feel like if you're not reading this, I don't think you like comics because yeah. this is, this, yeah, this is fantastic. Let, let me um, make a prediction, a prediction that people, there's going to be probably three or four YouTube videos and people complaining that Guy Gardner was taken out because he had a peanut allergy and they're going to be all upset, you know. And of course, and then then somebody's going to have the audacity to suggest that they actually read the comic. But that, but but that's uh, in any event. I uh, I yeah, thought it was quite brilliant. Bash, I don't know. People love to bash Tom King. I don't know what what <laughs> what it is. Maybe they just can't get over the idea that Batman and Catwoman didn't get married. Which I never. Thought, I mean, I never thought they would. It's Batman and Catwoman. Never thought well, but, look, I, I don't like all the Tom King stuff. Okay, I, I don't like his Batman. I don't like most, you know. So I, I can rip apart some Heroes in Crisis, his Batman run for the most part, you know. So I, I, I get it, and he, you know, Tom King can be dark, but there, there's a, but I mean, man, I mean, the guy, the guy can write, and uh, frankly, I like drama. I like dark. I like my darkness. Uh, I don't mind it, and especially when it's uh, when uh, you, you darken some characters that I don't really care all about anyway when you darken them up and make them interesting i'm gonna care about them and that's what tom king does through most of what he writes so that's why i like the character so i like the writer and like most of what he writes yeah yeah exactly and um it's just been a fun series like i've i don't is is christopher chance actually going to die again it's black label so he totally can and it doesn't doesn't mean that none, you know none of his previous stories count. It doesn't mean that you can't have stories with the human target moving forward. Um, well, this is out of continuity. But what, I, I what's going to happen? What ice? What what's ice's motivation? Why did she ask Guy? But she could ask Guy Gardner to do anything for her. He's going to do it, and that's kind of what Chance says to him. You know, you like you think <laughs> you pretended to be dead, and you think you're going to get a date out of it. You're an idiot, Gardner. I I do have one beef with Tom King and his interview. He, he actually spoiled the ending to this series. I caught that I, unless he was joking, but in, in your interview and he just volunteered, he just blurted out the ending in your interview with him. And it was like, you know, so people, you know, you want to be spoiled for human target. I mean, he seemed to spoil the ending. I go, why would you do that? It sounds pretty cool, but it's like, why would you spoil the ending to this series? You know, that surprised yeah. me. Yeah, it surprised me a little too. Um, yeah. But, but <laughs> maybe it's how, misdirection. How we, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And how we get there is still going to be interesting in that, yeah. that aspect of it. And then the other part I thought was, is he wrote that so long ago, did he not? This, in the moment that he said it, I was like, did he not realize that it's <laughs> yeah. not over yet? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, but he sounded serious, but you know, yeah. I mean, he was serious, but he was serious when he was on letter, when he was on, uh, when, when he was on that talk show and said that Batman was going to get married. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> so who knows? <laughs> yeah, Maybe it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah completely misdirection. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman Urban Legends number 23. There's four different stories in this. Uh, Nightwing, two-parter, comes to conclusion, part two of two. Director, Jamal Campbell is the writer and artist. Adriana Lucas on colors. Louis Gattoni on letters. Batman and Robin in Hot Pursuit, written by Kenny Porter. Simone DeMeo on art and colors. Darren Bennett on letters. Arkham Academy, part three of three from Dennis Culver. 
Hayden Sherman is the artist, Jordi Belair on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. And then the final part of Batman Murder Club, part four of four from writer Joey Esposito. Vasco Gregev is the artist, Alex Guermas on colors, Carlos Manguel on letters. Um, so yeah, what are, what are your thoughts on this one, Rocky? Well, I there are of all the stories here, the one that uh, well, the one that was artistically fantastic, Nightwing and the director of Jamal Campbell. Uh, that particular one, I thought it was uh, it was very well done. It was uh, it was. I'm glad that they Jamal Campbell's not you know surprisingly enough he yeah he did actually he's the writer and the artist. I thought he did a good job here. The idea that the villain being this director who sort of orchestrates crimes and directs crimes like a movie, but the people involved in the movie committing the crime are kind of forced to do it, and they they're sort of unwilling actors in a glorified movie but a real crimes being committed and i actually thought it was uh i thought it was good dialogue it was action-packed the art, art was absolutely fantastic we seem to have this uh this character this character is new to me but maybe it's maybe it's not new to others this flamingo character i'm, I'm not familiar with this character if this character this character is new to me but maybe this character's been around before but it's just beautifully rendered this flamboyant flamingo looking character that that nightwing has to take out with the help ultimately of uh, batgirl and it, the 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 head honcho the, the director herself ends up being this woman that uh uh, there's detective work involved. There was actually some Jamal Campbell scripted a fairly decent enough detective story where both Nightwing, Dick Grayson, and uh, Barbara Gordon piece together the clues and discover that one of the so-called extras was in fact the director hiding in plain sight. And it ends with this director being revealed. She's got a you know sort of pink hair and uh, you know cybernetic eye of some kind and just sort of a crazy Hitchcockian director and a hint of a larger of more people at play that are uh, uh, that are doing that working behind the scenes and I really like how it ended it ended with uh, this this new this another party this other person unknown person wearing this this sort of flamboyant sort of mask saying and cut end scene and so it, that the theme of a movie went through the entire narrative in, in two parts i thought it was very very well done um uh, do you want to comment on that or do you want me to just go through the rest too you want to yeah i thought it was done relatively well again pretty impressed this is as far as i know the first thing i've i've heard of or certainly the first thing i've read that jamal campbell has written you know he's more known as an artist uh, so i was pretty impressed with it uh a little tropey that at the, at the end, you know, it's a mystery. Who's the director? We find out who the director is and we find out, well, now there's somebody even, you know, behind her pulling her strings. Could his name be the producer, studio, <laughs> studio head? I go, who knows? You want to keep, keep up that whole analogy. But yeah, overall, I thought it was, was really, really entertaining. But I would be lying if I said that the, the art wasn't better than the writing. Um, but over, overall, very, uh, very entertaining story. And it does make me a little sad that um, the Batman urban legends is going away because we talked about it last time we covered one of the urban legends issues is it, it's been a real chance, almost like a trial book for some, some lesser known creators. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the Batman uh, or, or it's not Batman, but just brave and the bold series that's starting is going to be more known, um, you know, established creators, I guess we'd say so. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, as for the the other the, the other story, uh, Hot Pursuit, I, I sort of skimmer at Hot Pursuit. The, the one that I was most uh, the one that I was more interested in was the Arkham Academy story, uh, because I I really wanted I, I given the disaster of Teen Titans Academy, I was really looking forward to seeing how this I'd like to I think there's a future for Arkham Academy. The idea of students going to Arkham Academy that are maybe juvenile delinquents and being sort of redeemed and or, or at least attempt to rehabilitate them. I have to say I was uh, I was really shocked. This really surprised me, this particular uh, story. It, it's part three, classes in session. And the little kitten, the, the sort of the Catwoman, wannabe Catwoman sidekick, ends up, was literally killed by Clayface. And the other students, the other students consisting of Scorn, Enigma, and Scream end up uh, defeating Killer Croc. And it's... I, I didn't like the reveal, to be honest. I, I want to be clear that I, I really love the, I enjoyed the, uh, I love, I love the heart, the art by Hayden Sherman and the colors by Jordi Bolera, I thought really worked. I love the eclectic sort of like, it's very stylistic and I really loved how Clayface is drawn so terrifying and the battle, the, the fight scenes in the classroom as uh, Scorn, Enigma and Scream as sort of attack Killer Croc because he, they just, he, he just killed uh, their friend Little Kitten and and to, but the reveal at the end really disappointed me, and that basically it's it's the court of owls that are, uh, you know, their teacher was just work is just a member of the court of owls, and they're they're bringing in students to teach students to basically be criminals, and I just think it's um I just think that's absolutely absurd because it's as if that's not going to be discovered right away. I mean, it, it it lacks it doesn't possess any verisimilitude whatsoever. I, I would have been infinitely more interested in this story had it involved students that were juvenile delinquents and 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 very much wanting to stay bad but are pulled toward being good and, and that tension. But the idea that as if they're gonna be able to keep a secret that, that the Court of Owls is running a school at, at Arkham Academy, come on. That 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 just that just lacks any verisimilitude. It doesn't work for me. And, um, yeah, I just, I was very, very disappointed with that. That just, that doesn't fly. I, I just, I don't see how that can, that can work. And so I was very, very disappointed in that. Uh, but, but I still want to give Dennis Culver credit. I really like the characters and I thought there were, there was good character work here. And I thought the dialogue was, was good. Uh, I just thought, man, what a, what a, what a missed opportunity, because uh, I really thought that this story went in the wrong direction for me. So I'd be curious to know your thoughts on, on this particular story. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way. I was a little disappointed. I mean, I, I still think it's a good story. I still think it's worth reading, and I still think it has potential. However, and, and I also can understand why Dennis probably, you know, uh, paced it out this way. Because he doesn't know if he's going to get to tell any more Arkham Academy stories, right? So, you you if there's not going to be any more, then you at least want to get to the point, I guess. But for me, I think keeping the mystery alive of of what the academy is for a longer period of time, you know, give us this idea. You know, you can sort of hint at what it might be, and um, and and lead us in one direction, like oh, they're training them to be heroes, and then you know, give us some sinister tactics or, you know, different teachers that might lean one or the other, like think Harry Potter, right? Like you always wonder, is Snape a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Like, you know, that, that sort of thing. And so I, you could have done the same thing here. Now, again, granted, he doesn't know that he's going to get a chance to tell that story. So 
you know, maybe he just wanted to, to at least kind of establish what his, what his ultimate plan was. But I just think like, I don't have as much interest. I still would read an Arkham Academy ongoing, but I would have much more interest in reading uh, an Arkham Academy ongoing if I still wasn't sure, you know, are they training heroes? Are they trying to keep these supervillain kids, uh, you know, uh, daughters and sons or, or, or what, or what have you, you know, that have connections to supervillains? Are they trying to keep an eye on them because they want them to not follow in the footsteps of whomever, or do they instead want, you know, are they training them to be bad guys? Like if you could have kept that mystery going longer, I, I probably would have enjoyed it more. Um, or at least be more interested in reading more about it long-term, I guess you could say. So yeah, I have, I sort of have mixed feelings um, about it overall. Uh, but I thought the Hayden Sherman chart, uh, Hayden Sherman art was really good. And I, you know, there's enough action and it was well-paced. And I, I, I did think the character work for the students was, was well done. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you mentioned Teen Titans Academy and how we were, um, ultimately disappointed in, in that series because it never seemed to go anywhere. It's almost like you needed a mashup of the two, right? Like Teen Titans Academy, the problem with that is that it dragged out and we never got the answer, you know, Red X and all that stuff. This one's too too soon. You gave us the answers too soon. We needed we needed the balance, right? We mm-hmm. needed the good balance. So uh, anyway, yeah, little little a little disappointed, but. I still think there's potential there, um, but it also feels like they wasted a little bit of, of potential, be giving uh, this, the mystery away so soon. Uh, the, uh, the the final story was Murder Club, the Murder Club finale. This, this of course, I don't know if we did mention, this is the final issue of Batman Urban Legends issue 23. And uh, Murder Club deals with, uh, deals with the return of, uh, well, Bruce's parents, uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne, uh, uh, they're brought in from the past. They've got to be returned to the. They got to be. They got to be returned to the past, and ultimately, it's. It was. Um, I'm. I'm trying to. I. Sh- I'm trying to remember who the writer is on it. Joey Esposito. Joey Esposito. There. There were some nice moments here. Uh, Joey Esposito does script some nice moments between Bruce and his parents, and uh, because they're. Uh, uh, they realize that, you know, they're inspired by him. Their son shows them how to be brave. And it's, they know that when they return to the past, obviously they're returning to their fate, a fate that will ultimately result in their son becoming Batman, who ultimately, initially, they weren't happy with that. They were, particularly Thomas Wayne was very disappointed with the knowledge that, uh, you know, you know, we we're billionaires. We could give you anything, and we die, and and you become you dress up like a bat. What? <laughs> so so it ends. It ends well how you kind of would expect, and so it it has a it has a feel good ending. It's well done. It's well drawn, and it ends with Batman having a good good moments with Nightwing and Robin, and 
Yeah, it was it's it's sort of it was actually a nice capstone, I think, to Batman Urban Legends as as a whole, because Batman Urban Legends really was we had it was 23 issues of stories that were somewhat hit and miss. But it started off with a bang. There were some really good stories in this series, but maybe just, you know, with it's just so many of the titles, so many of the stories that were really good. Unfortunately, I think just just got drowned out in the overwhelming amount of just Batman titles. And that's unfortunate because there, there are some stories that probably don't, didn't get the attention that they deserve. Uh, meanwhile, you get, uh, you get a, a group of uh, I- idiots on the internet focusing on Joker being pregnant uh, as a, <laughs> and what have you, as opposed to, uh, you know, you know, looking for stories uh, and, and actually, you know, trying to enjoy yourself instead of trying to create drama. But uh that's another issue, but uh, what do you think? Oh, sorry, you're on mute there, my friend. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this overall. Um, the only nitpick, uh, and I'll kind of get kind of get it out of the way first. The only nitpick I had is the fact that I did feel like I got a little bit of whiplash in terms of, you know, you you mentioned. Um, how Thomas Wayne didn't originally – Thomas and Martha both were were not originally re- really thrilled with the choice that Bruce made to become Batman. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of weird um, because in this, all of a sudden, it flips. And, you know, I guess it's – you kind of got to assume, you know, what happened off panel between Alfred and, and the parents where, um, you know, Alfred shared all the, the information and, and showed the um, – you know, the scrapbook and, and Hey, here's, here's all the good that Bruce has done for Gotham, you know, in, in the years that you've been gone and, and they kind of came around to it. And, and we did have Damien, which was supposed to be an emotional moment. Didn't really land that well for me. So yeah, it was just, I don't know. It, it was just a little wonky. I liked the premise of the story, maybe a little better than the, the execution, but the art by Vasco Gregev was, was fantastic throughout. He's probably a name that will, um, that we'll hear again. Uh, as an artist for DC. Um, so I thought that was done really, really well also. So overall, yeah, um, I thought it was a strong issue to, to end on. Um, and yeah, I have mixed feelings about Batman Urban Legends ending because it's a lot, you know, it's, a, it's like, man, it's an 80 page book to read every month. Um, but yeah, I do. It, it was a chance to, as I said, give some lesser known talent, uh, a book and get some eyes on their, on their work. So from that point of view, I'm sad it's ending. Um, so we'll have to see how, how well brave and the bold does. Uh, all right. Up next, we have wildcats. Number three, this is from writer, Matthew Rosenberg. Steven Segovia is the artist. Elmer, Elmer Santos on colors, Farron Delgado on letters. Um, I'm enjoying this. Uh, I, I, I do feel like I, all I really need is Matthew Rosenberg and grifter. And if Zealot wants to show up once in a while, I'm fine with that. I don't really need um, what's her name, Caitlin from Gen 13, Caitlin Fairchild. I don't. I don't need uh, Imp. Um, you know, Jacob Marlowe. I, I just. I don't need. I don't need them. I, I do. But it is an interesting take. You know, we saw last issue on the final page that uh, Jacob Marlowe introduced the, the seven soldiers. Uh, of victory, but not the seven soldiers of victory you're used to seeing from DC comics. He's actually pulling other wildstorm characters 
Threshold, uh, Majestic, you know, who certainly remember from Wildstorm Mall is another one. Yeah. Um, and then some of them that I really wasn't that familiar with, but none of them are who they claim to be or who they're, uh, who they're uh, presenting themselves as. So it's a little bit almost of a take of, of the boys, right? Uh, yeah. They're really doing it- bad stuff. It's like Matthew Rosenberg uh, knows that he. It's like he doesn't want us to yell at him like we yell at Ed Brisson about not name, not giving names to all the characters. There's a lot of characters there, but at least he names them all. Yeah, he na- <laughs> yeah, he names them all. So that aspect of the story, I, I'm the jury's still out on that. But as long as I keep getting Grifter, like I'm in, right? I just I read this <laughs> yeah. for Grifter, and exactly. I, I before. Like I liked Grifter well enough. Like I, to me, before I read Matthew Rosenberg's take on Grifter in Batman: Urban Legends, actually, um, I my favorite thing about Grifter was his visual. Like I just think he's got a great look, and that was my favorite thing about him. I never had read a story, plenty of stories with Grifter in it, but never was really a character that I cared about. In the hands of Matthew Rosenberg, this is a character Cole Cash that I can read about. All day long. Like I'll read all the grifter that Matthew Rosenberg wants to write. Uh, If I have to read about some of these other characters that I'm not as interested in to go along with that. Yeah. Okay. I'm down. Um, And I I should also say um, in fairness to Rosenberg that I I am also curious about this new version of death blow that we got, got um, kind of the origin of, I don't, I don't even know what to call him him, or I guess him because ultimately the, the personality and the mental capacity, the self-identity is, you know, Michael Cray. Right. Um, and we did get the origin of that in the, the uh, Wildstorm 30th anniversary. So that, that intrigues me. The fact that this consciousness personality and memories of Michael Cray can just continually be transplanted into new human hosts. Um, that's an intriguing idea because honestly, I mean, Deathblow always felt like a kind of a Punisher ripoff. And never really felt like he had much unique about him. So yeah. that, that that intrigues me as well. Um, and yeah, Zealot is just another Wildstorm character that, yeah, it has a lot to do with the visual design. I think she's, you know, she just looks great. Um, but ultimately, Grifter's my favorite in, in the hands of Matthew Rosenberg. I don't know that I ever really had a favorite Wildstorm character, at least if we're talking about the connected Wildstorm universe. Uh, but Grifter's definitely taken that spot for me. Uh, again, in the hands of Matthew Rosenberg, he's just—he's unapologetic. Doesn't give a shit what anybody says. Does what he wants to do, um, and he's just uh, very capable, right? And he shows that in this issue when yeah. um, the rest of his team. So after the the stage presentation by Jacob Marlowe, Grifter gets into it backstage with uh, with one of the Seven Soldiers of Victory, this guy named Pike, who's actually the guy who killed Grifter's brother. So you can understand why Grifter holds a grudge. And so when they trade blows, Jacob Marley sends Cole Cash home. He's like, you know, you're suspended or whatever. Um, and then he ends up having to call him in to rescue uh, Fairchild and Zealot and, uh, and Deathblow because they're out on a mission and they get in over their head. And again, it's just a fantastic action scene with Fairchild literally throwing Grifter up onto this helicopter that he gets in, defeats the guys that are in the helicopter and, and takes it over. Um, and yeah, the rest of the team's like, yeah, we, we, you might not, Marlo, you might like, not like Grifter, but we need him, you know? Yeah. 
So he's just, yeah, he's, he's yeah. awesome. He do sort of take it a little bit with a grain of salt because he doesn't necessarily have any superpowers other than like heightened reflexes um, and a healing factor like so many superheroes do. But, uh, but yeah, he's just, his personality in the hands of Matthew Rosenberg is just fantastic. It's just so much fun to read about. Yeah. Like he's a dick. He says the things to people that we wish we could say, yeah. but because of social, exactly social decorum, right. you, you can't, you know, you got to bite your tongue. Yeah. Uh, we're living in a society here. Grifter doesn't give a shit. We're living <laughs> yeah. in a society. He just does it. Yeah. It's just so fun. It's just so fun. So yeah. what were your thoughts? Yeah, uh, man, I, I just agree with you uh, on, on this. I love it. I enjoy this series. I like, I love wild cat. I love wild cats. And I, uh, I, I, my jury, the jury's still out for me on death blow, if I'm honest, but you know, whatever, you know, if you're, if you're going to death blow is going to look different, why not look like a sexy woman? What the hell? You know, it's the 21st century. I'm just going to have to, you know, whatever. Uh, just let me kiss my daughter goodnight here. Okay. Uh, but yeah, one thing about Grifter that I just love that really comes across is it's amazing. Grifter is kind of, he's kind of an idiot. He's treated like the team idiot at times. And yet what I love about this issue is, you know, he's not allowed to go on the one mission, you know, so Wildcats are sent to retrieve this young, the son of an ambassador because they got to rescue this, this kid named Dante. And, but you know, Grifter's not allowed to go with him, so he's go he goes off on his own investigating the debacle that they got in in the first and second issue, and he ends up finding the Court of Owl. He and so he ends up doing some more good. Grifter is always doing; he follows his instincts. Grifter may not be the world's greatest detective, but his instincts his instincts are seem to be on par with Batman. He might not know why his instincts are telling him to, to go here or go there. Like Batman, Batman knows Batman's instincts are in sync with his detective work. Whereas Grifter, it's almost like Grifter just attracts trouble, but he attracts the right kind of trouble because he's so it, it, he's, he gets things done. And it's really telling here where he's confronting and battling the, the Talon, the Court of Owls, and he literally gets transported away because Marlowe needs to send him to the Wildcats because he's got to rescue the Wildcats. So almost like acknowledging, yeah, we probably should have sent Grifter with, uh, with, with the team. And of course, uh, and the team just knows it, Zealot in particular. Uh, and I should give some background for those people who don't know, Zealot and Grifter had they have had an on again, off again sort of sexual relationship, at least in past Wildcat stories. And it's, it, was, it was always a question of Zealot and Grifter are always like the idea is that they kind of they're kind of in love with each other, but they're both in complete total denial. And they both just say they hate each other and they're just teammates. But they they're kind of they have a little fun on the side. At least they did in the old days. And so I like that there's always that undercurrent there. At least that's what I choose to see as a as a as a reader of remembering the old wildcats and i you know i know uh, i have some uh, friends online that aren't necessarily fans of matthew Ro rosenberg's writing style and they they're not fans of his humor but I, I share your sentiment i find it funny i i think grifter's hilarious i love you and i have loved uh this grift matthew rosenberg's grifter right right we just finished reviewing Batman Urban Legends. The first six issues of Batman Urban Legends was that grifter story, The Long Con, which ended with the Wildcats uh, in that sixth issue of Batman Urban Legends, uh, uh, obtaining and stealing the database from Wayne Tower on all the superheroes. And that's something that might come into play in this storyline, too. So... I'm enjoying this. I, I think Matthew Rose, Rosenberg's having a lot of fun, and I'm having a lot of fun with him. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think uh, it's clear that Matthew Rosenberg is a fan of Wildcats, and it would not surprise me to find out that Grifters is his favorite character. I actually would be surprised if Grifters not his favorite character. So, yeah. uh, all right. Last book we're going to talk about in detail, uh, Wonder Woman number 795, Before the Storm Part 2, written by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. Amon K. Nahalapan does the art, Tamara Bonvillon on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. We saw last issue that Eros was um, kind of manipulating Wonder Woman and Yara Floor. Uh, the, the two Wonder Women confront him. They even get Wonder Woman's magic lasso tied around him uh, to, to try to understand what is motivating him. Um, and I, I suppose in turn, what you know, what his orders from Hera are. Like what what's Hera's uh, end game here? And it's so interesting because he talks a lot about his love for Yara Floor and it's all a distraction, right? Like, yes, he's telling the truth, but um, he's trying to, to, even though he's tied up with the lasso, trying to uh, manipulate, but he does eventually tell them, hey, it's all about the fact that humans don't worship the gods like they used to. They don't believe in the gods like they used to. And they're, they're trying to basically... Um, convince people that they exist, you know, um, they're trying to consolidate power. They want to keep, keep going. And, and he tells Yara Florin Wonder Woman, you should be on my side. Like what happens to the Amazons if the gods lose all their power, right? Like no more magic, no more, um, concealment of Paradise Island and all that sort of stuff. But I mean, know, know your audience, Eros, right? They're never going <laughs> to agree to it, especially after the way you manipulated Yara Floor, you know, previously. So, it's actually a pretty action-packed issue, and I think uh, Amon K's art is is really really solid. Um, yeah. I, I, if I have any complaint about about the art, it's that everything seems to have this reddish or orange filter over it, um, and I don't necessarily blame Tamara Bonvillon for that because I, I feel like that has sort of been the case. It's been an interesting color palette all along this entire run of Wonder Woman. And it's like, you know, Wonder Woman should be one of those books in my mind that's very primarily colored, you know, like a Superman book because it's such a classic superhero story. You know, maybe Batman, you go a little bit darker just be based on who the character is now. But with Superman and Wonder Woman, I think you need bright, vibrant primary colors and it helps to sell it as, you know, a traditional superhero book. Now, maybe based on the stories that are being told, you know, they, they just don't feel like they should lean that direction and, you know, that's fine. Whatever. I know I'm little bit Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking here, but um, I just, I don't particularly care for the coloring and, and haven't for a while. So I just wanted to, um, to mention that, but overall, there's a lot of action here. Uh, we get a little bit of cheetah and uh, in my mind, not enough. That's <laughs> like cheetah as a character, I think Clunan and Conrad write her better than any other character that's been in this entire book. Lean into what you're good at. Um, give us a lot of cheetah. Um, but overall, at, at least what we're getting is a narrative, you know, whether you like it or not, that at least is consistent in terms of, man, we're, we're pulling from their very earliest stuff, right? When Wonder Woman was traveling through all those mythological lands um, and it had everything to do with the gods and, you know, they're, they're being killed and then brought back and all that. And, and leaning into the second arc with Dr. Psycho, which was a little rough to read, but it, at least we're, you know, we're finding out, okay, he was being manipulated by Hera as well. Like it's all one big story. You know, we can argue about how 
how good the quality has been or if it's been consistent or not. But at least it's all one big story. Um, and as it's gone on, it's it's making more and more sense. Um, whether or not it's a story you personally want to read or whether I personally want to read, you know, that's another story altogether. Um, but it is leaning into the idea of Wonder Woman having a strong connection to the to the gods, which has always been my least favorite when Wonder Woman, when they lean into the god stuff. That's why, you know, as legendary as he is, God rest his soul, I wasn't a big fan of the George Perez uh, run because it just it's not my cup of tea. Same thing when Brian Azzarello came on at the beginning of New 52. It was very much tied in with the gods, and it's just not – I don't know. I, I had this in college – college I went to, I was forced to study Greek mythology for <laughs> two semesters my freshman year. Right. You know, after having, you know, read a bunch of it in honors English in high school. And it's just, yeah, kind of one of those things where, you know, when you do like an eating contest and you have so much of, you know, maybe it's a root beer drinking contest or watermelon eating contest and you like oh, have yeah. so much of it, you never want to have it again. Really? Um, maybe that's how I sort of feel about the gods. Greek gods are just not interesting to me at all um but again paced well tons of action and uh there's a fantastic david nakayama cover as well so what were your thoughts on this well i've been um i've not been kind to this series for a very very long time but i will say that this is um and I'll still say, I'm going to give a compliment, but I don't want people to misconstrue it as too much of a compliment. This is the least offensive Wonder Woman comic in at least the last 10 months. Uh, Damn that phrase. I, well, uh, I even like the covers better. Uh, the, the cover B is fantastic. Uh, the covers are really nice. And I really, really love Aminke Nahul Penn's art is really good. I love the darker tones here. This is finally Wonder Woman looks a little kick-ass. Um, uh, Manuela Lapacino's art was uh, a little bit maybe, it didn't quite jive with me as much as I like her style. I, I like this. This the darker tones here were were so were, were much needed. I also I'm gonna I'm gonna say that <laughs> I personally the the conversation between Wonder Girl here and Eros is quite revealing because it actually clarifies some of the talking points or some of the plot that in Wonder Girl's own series were not entirely clear. It was not clear to me in in Wonder Girl's seven issue series and it was canceled. It wasn't absolutely clear to me that Eros manipulated Wonder Girl. He did shoot her with an arrow, but Wonder Girl seemed to kind of want to have a relationship with Eros, and then she kind of didn't. Here, uh, this removes all doubt. Wonder Girl makes it absolutely clear that Eros, no, 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 Eros, you manipulated me. You manipulated me. You forced me. But Eros makes clear that I fell in love with you. And we actually, I'm glad we have that absolute confirmation, clarification on that point. Because I don't think that Joelle Jones, there's lots of things that Joelle Jones as a writer did, despite some good art. As a writer, she those first seven issues of Wonder Girl didn't work very well. A large, a large part of this dialogue is Wonder Girl and Eros essentially confirming and, and confirming and in my view clarifying what their relationship was in her series. And it did a better job summarizing it here than Wonder Girl's actual series did, which just is telling just how bad that series was uh, from a writing point of view. Uh, now, having said that, 
not much happens here in terms of the plot. We already know, Eros basically says the plot that we already know what the plot is. Hera wants people, she wants people, Hera wants people to worship the gods because the, the, great, the great gods came back from the dead. Wonder, Wonder Woman resurrected the gods, went to the graveyard of the gods after coming back from death metal, dying, coming back, went to the graveyards of the gods, resurrected them. All the gods came back and now all the gods came back and apparently they all want to side with Hera and be, be evil and get all the planet to worship them again because they're not, they, they're not powerful enough. Um, it's a legitimate question why Wonder Woman resurrected them. Uh, that's still an ongoing question. It wasn't necessary. The existence of the Greek gods are not necessary for anything. They're not necessary for life on earth. They're not necessary for anything. Why resurrect the gods? That's never made clear. Hippolyta is now a goddess. Why? Uh, in order to represent the Amazons. Well, she's not exactly doing a good job, but, but I will say this about the Clunrads. You can kind of see where they're going. Hera created this magic, this vile milk. And this milk, I thought this milk made all the men into misogynists. That's what I thought happened. But apparently this milk made all the people prone to maybe want to worship the gods. I still don't understand what the purpose of the milk was. But then in this issue, we have Eros who just fires his uh, arrow randomly into the crowd and makes all the crowd love, like love Diana. You know, so it's instead of... Eros shooting his arrow into somebody to make them fall in love. He is sort of like a like a, a love bomb, uh, where all these people that are within the explosion of this exploding arrow, they they just love the person they're closest to, so they love Diana. Okay, but but why? I'm I, I'm still not sure exactly where this is going. I th this plot seems so sort of simplistic. I wish the plot was more sophisticated, but I will say though that. It's nice to see Yara Flora. Yara Flora is well written here. I loved her, her. Her attitude, her cockiness came through. Her personality that I like really came through. I really enjoyed that. I, even though I, this is overly simplistic as a plot, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the moments with Cheetah. I like when Cheetah said to Steve Trevor, "Look, uh, you got a broken leg. Uh, you got a broken ankle, and you want to ride your motorbike into that into that guy? Are you kidding?" He goes and. I like what she said to him. She says, if you die, I don't have time to, you know, kill him as revenge for you dying because I've got my own revenge to deal with. And so uh, I like you, I, I sort of enjoy the scripting of Cheetah here. So overall, because the, the visuals played a large role with me enjoying this issue so much more, I really, really loved the visual, the, the artistic change. This worked for me. Um, I still have some issues with the overall plotting. I'm not going to lie, but. I do feel much better about this than I have in previous issues. And uh, I think that was your dog saying, I think does your does your does your dog wanna give his point of view or <laughs> always yeah, my wife just leave him to go go pick up my daughter from dance. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I have mixed feelings about this series. Like I wanted it to be so good. I wonder woman you know, I, same thing when with the first issue of the Mariko Tamaki run. Like, I I just raved about how great that issue was. And I thought, man, we're finally going to get, you know, a fantastic Wonder Woman leaning into Maxwell Lord as her, uh, you know, one of her nemeses and expanding her rogues gallery. And that thing just went off a cliff. Just went off a cliff. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, this has been – it's been a rough ride. I just feel so bad. Like, I don't understand why we can't get – a good consistent run on Wonder Woman. Like when was the last time we had a good, I mean, I guess a lot of people like the Azarello run 
Um, again, I wasn't a big fan. I guess it's been since the Greg Rucka with Nicholas yeah. Scott and yeah. and Liam Sharp. Um, and previous yeah. to that, like, yeah, I got to well, go Well, I, I want to give a shout out to Kelly Sudeconic's Historia. She's the one bright spot, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. 100%. Yeah. That's, yeah. So anyway, that does it for um, the single issues that we're going to chat about. There actually are no collections this week. I double checked that. Yeah, there's no there's no collections. It's really, really strange. But there are a few other single issues that are coming out this week. Uh, Batman, The Adventures Continue, Season 3, Issue Number 1. We've got Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries, Number 4, and Looney Tunes, Number 270. Uh, can't believe DC has not rebooted that with a new number one. <laughs> but anyway, those are the other books that are out. You already mentioned that your book of the week is Lazarus Planet. Um, it, this is tough. Like, there's not really anything that's that doesn't that that wasn't entertaining. You know, best issue of Wonder Woman that we've had in a long time. You know, we talked about it last episode, but fl- the uh, beginning of One Minute War is really really intriguing. I really enjoyed Lazarus Planet much more than I thought I was going to. Danger Street, really intriguing. Plenty of uh, relationship drama in I Am Batman. Plenty of great grifter moments in Wildcats. Um, you got to pick one. You got to pick one, my friend. Oh, it's, it's so tough. I mean, Human Target was really funny. <laughs> Batman, Joker, Deadly Duo impressed me. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go. Oh, it's so tough. Batman Incorporated name dropping and, and getting some confirmation on what a jerk Ghostmaker is. You know, I'm going to go with Batman and Joker Deadly Duo. I just, it, it harkens back. We both mentioned it harkens back to an early, earlier era of Batman when he wasn't quite so brooding uh, and quite so dark. And, uh, <laughs> and I really enjoy that. I, I sort of missed that, that, that version of Batman. Um, I, and I, again, I don't know how, how well this would work. Because I mentioned it when I talked about it, you know, Mark Silvestri is certainly n- much more known as a an artist than a writer. And part of the draw of this book is that you get Mark Silvestri drawing Batman and drawing Gotham City. I could care less about him drawing Joker because whatever, I'm not yeah. a Joker fan. But he does draw a menacing looking, <laughs> evil looking Joker. Um, but would people buy a Batman book that's written by Silvestri but not drawn by him? Would Sylvester want to just write? Really, very curious. Um, yeah, I certainly would. If, if this is the tone, this is the Bruce Wayne that we're going to get. Uh, I just need to go back and do like a Steve, Steve Englehart run, read, read his run of Batman to remind myself that Batman wasn't always so dark, basically. So uh, anyway, yeah, that's my pick of the week. Batman and Joker, deadly duo. But I got to say, the the – Difference between the worst issue this week and the best issue of DC books is maybe the smallest it's I can ever recall it being. Like I thought everything was, you know, Wonder Woman, if I'm fair, is probably about average, but everything else was above average. Uh, really, really strong week from DC. So uh, I have a few creator-owned interviews coming up for some Zoop projects, and I hope you all got a chance to listen to my chat with Meredith McLaren and Kelly Thompson about their book that's out this Wednesday from Image called Black Cloak. If you subscribe to Kelly Thompson's Substack, you've already had a chance to read it, but it's this really cool mashup of fantasy and sci-fi. Um, it kicks off with a murder mystery, so highly recommend it. Uh, and it's like 
51 or 52 pages of story in the first issue. I, I, I've read it already. I, I got the, I got a preview copy as well. And I, it's, uh, I enjoyed it. I read it. I had to read it about two, almost three times. Uh, but the fact that I actually wanted to read it a second time is a compliment to it. I was, it was, I, it was surprisingly enticing. It pulled me in. I was, uh, I'm definitely going to, and I love the Jeff to call cover is my personal favorite. So I'm, I'm intrigued with the series. Yeah. So definitely go listen to that uh, episode. And uh, what about you, Rocky? Got anything uh, that you want to tease coming out? Oh soon? well, I I actually um I'm I I actually um tr- I have a number of different things that I'm doing. I've got uh, what I'm going to be doing this year uh, for my channel. I'm at least twice a week. I've got uh, I got I'm doing honesty rants. I did an honesty rant on why does it really matter if if we have a Titans if the Titans replace the Justice League. So I, I'm going to have honesty rants where I give the cold hard my my own personal cold hard truth on certain realities of the DC universe as I see them. And I'm going to have another uh, series called uh, Boom Bits, uh, which uh, which I'll elaborate on later. And uh, I'm going to also going to be uh, probably you know every second week I'm going to have a series called missed opportunities where I review past DC storylines and, uh, and, and vent about the opportunities that were missed to tell a better story (laughs) than the one that was actually told. Uh, Cause I, 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 I'm going to play strip doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You're trying out for the position of DC editor in chief. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I figure like as a reviewer, I think it's unfair sometimes. And I do this. I think it's unfair as a reviewer if I play script doctor all the time. And if I review a comic and say, well, they should have did this. They should have did this. They should have. Well, that, I'm not really reviewing the comic. It's me trying to be a writer. Well, that's not right. So I figured, well, if I'm going to do that, why not? Why not vent in, a, in in an actual, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of me just ranting and raving, having the audacity in my in my particular uh, arrogance to presume on how the story ought to have been written. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, that's going to do it, everybody. Thanks for joining. As always, don't forget to head over to YouTube, subscribe to Rocky's channel. Just do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point, and you know what to do from there. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave comments, like this video. Uh, conversely, if you've stumbled across this on YouTube, and you're curious about the other audio-only content that comes out from the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the Comic Source, and subscribe. So, uh, yeah, hoping for a good year of comics. Still uh, going through my list of things I read last year. We'll have the best of uh, Comic Source 2022, Comic Source Comic Boom 2022 awards coming up, hopefully before the end of the month. Um, So with that being said, appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.